You're now listening to Sound Talent Media. Check out more shows at SoundTalentMedia.com. This Friday, your favorite emotions are back on the big screen in Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2. It's time to greet your Team Riley. It's anger. Let me at him. Fear. Safety checklist is complete. Disgust. Ew, ew. Sadness is in the house. Oh, no. Hello, I'm anxiety. I'm one of Riley's new emotions. Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2. There's a part two? We're going. Ready PG. Parental guidance suggested. Only in theaters Friday. Get tickets now. This is the Jabberjaw Podcast Network. Visit JabberjawMedia.com for more shows like this one. darkness my old friend how are we doing welcome to the x-men my name is doc coyle and i'll be your host for this evening or morning whenever you're listening to this show so yeah it's been a weird couple days guys for those i don't know you know how many people international listeners we have but for us in the old u.s things got a little weird this uh past sunday with the nfl and the NBA and the president and all this stuff. And and I know in a lot of ways, no one, like we don't, we want to kind of, part of the reason why everyone's so angry about a lot of this stuff is that everything is getting politicized right now. And you just want to shut it off, right? You want to like, listen, I just, I just want to watch the fucking football game and not have to worry about who's doing what and who voted for this and this issue and these their rights, and you just want to be able to be entertained. Uh, I understand that sentiment. We want to be able to look through our Facebook scroll and not have to be, uh, you know, just shot at with all these political ideas because it kind of disrupts that that ability to to be blissfully, maybe not ignorant, but just that there's so much in life that doesn't have to do with politics. But the truth is, I think. Everything, if you break it down, does have a political nature to it, if you are willing to dig deep. But I think in many ways we prefer not to dig that deep because it unveils inconvenient truths. You know, you can go and buy an iPhone and say, this, I love my iPhone. And who knows how many conflict minerals in there or people at Foxconn died making it or, and you could, you could do that for everything, right? You could go see some movie, you know, like breakfast club, which was a movie I loved when I was a kid or when I was a little older and I watched the movie. Now I'm like, Hey man, no brothers in this movie, but why should there be, you know, it's a movie about somewhere in Illinois in the eighties and just like eight people in the whole movie. And sometimes when you make everything political, it kind of, um, sucks the joy out of a lot of the just the you know we're supposed to you know we go to work we have our responsibilities and then you want to be able to shut all that off and just enjoy yourself but i think we're at a time where you know we're we're just not going to get that um 
that time off. You know, we we should be thinking about a lot of these things. And I really hate making this space like, all right, here's the rant where Doc Till talks about his politics. Because that's, you guys, you guys don't want to hear that all the time. You know, you, you want to hear this show and listen to stories about musicians and the music scene and heavy metal and creativity and the industry. So I'm, I am conscious of that. I'm, I'm aware of that. And I don't want to be super annoying guy. But unfortunately, I'm also in that uh, vantage point where I feel that if I don't talk about certain things, then I'm being willfully ignorant and I'm. It's like, if you've seen a lot of my writing, especially last year, it's a lot, it's very, it's getting more political because that's what's on my mind. So I've, I think I've, I've mentioned this before on the show, but I'm mentioning again, unfortunately, some of these things are so prescient. They're so of the moment and the, it's affecting everyone that if it's, we're not talking about it, that we're not being honest to the moment. So I think, unfortunately, yeah, we got it. We have to you know, do some, do some hard work and talk about things and be uncomfortable and figure some shit out. And it's okay. We're going to, we're going to, we're going to be all right. I think. And, and hopefully if anything I can do is try and take some of these difficult things and I'm always going to find a way to see how we can find our common ground. And cause I do believe that we more often than not, we have more in common than we have, um, that we disagree with. I'll give you an example. And this is something that really annoyed me about the the whole NFL protest was people on Facebook and some people on Twitter just saying, well, I'm so mad at these players. I'm boycotting the NFL. And I just I just don't understand that. You know, it's like I don't agree with the politics of like James Woods or John Voight or Clint Eastwood, but I'm not going to not see their movies. Those motherfuckers are good as hell what they do. You know, I, I don't know. You know, uh, you know, Michael Jordan might, you know what I'm saying, that might might believe that all, you know, Taiwanese people should be killed for all I know. I don't know, but he's good at basketball. I don't, I, I've never gotten to that idea that the um, the entertainment that I enjoy, the people making it have to hold my values or same political beliefs. I think the things have nothing to do with each other, you know, um, just if you like football, watch football. If you like basketball, watch basketball. If you like movies, I mean, hell, if you're on the conservative end of things, and if it really bothered you that everyone was was liberal, you would never watch a movie or another TV show again because they make most of that stuff. It's so it's kind of silly to like boycott. I mean, listen, I, I understand if you have your you you feel very strong about something, do what you got to do. Um, I don't begrudge anyone taking a stand. But I, I've kind of separated that. I'm not, I'm not. If I like football, I'm gonna watch football. I don't care what they're doing. They kneeling, they standing, they doing fucking handstands. Motherfuckers doing backflips. I don't know. Whatever they're doing, it's football. If you like football, watch football. Don't worry about it. All right. That's the whole thing. Everyone, you know, people doing things. Sometimes you just gotta relax. You know, they're they're. You know, you got people going to Berkeley, right wing people going to Berkeley, and people they're going crazy. We gotta stop them. No, you don't. They're fine. Just let them speak. People kneeling. Oh my God, we gotta stop them from kneeling. No, you don't. They're they're fine. Just relax. Just let let people do what they're gonna do. You know, we're gonna be all right. All right. Enough of me yammering and yammering, talking a bunch of shit. But I feel like it had to be said. And hopefully that was like talking about political elements in a way, but without being 
too hammer fisted and, and shoving my my thoughts in your guys' brains. But um, I guess to kind of pivot from this, I would also just like to thank everyone for listening to the show. I want to remind you guys, please rate and review the show on iTunes. I also have a newsletter that I'm doing once a month called the DC Monthly. If uh, you want to sign up, just hit me up on social media, send me your email address, or you can send me an email to the X-Man podcast at gmail.com. Uh, music news, things are kind of a little quiet. I can't tell you my band, Bad Wolves, has a record deal, but it's top secret. I can't say with who yet, but I guarantee you very soon we will have new music and a press release and all that jazz, and we're looking to have an album out early 2018 so i'm very excited about that we're working on some new songs shit is pretty sick i'm getting pretty pumped up not gonna lie uh so yeah so i'm gonna stop talking a bunch of shit and i'm gonna get right into my talk with brian fair you i don't really need to introduce this guy if you listen to this show you know who brian fair is he was in overcast he was in shadows fall death ray vision uh transient now he has a band called uh downpour and another band called hell night he's within our world i i consider him to be a legendary figure um he's a he's just such a great guy uh an incredible performer and like me he had that um he was lucky enough to kind of come up in the hardcore scene but then get to graduate into this world of heavy metal and professional music and his vantage point is just completely unique and special so i'm this is one of the guys i'm sure uh the fans of the show wanted to hear from so please enjoy this conversation with my old friend great and talented brian fair i definitely want to go way back i actually just just went a little way back you know, for the last couple hours, I would like listen to some Overcast, nice and shit. And it's um, you know, that was my first. That's when you first came on my my, my radar. Um, I had the Begging for Indifference EP, mm-hmm. and I remember just hearing that, and it was like we, we we had probably just gotten into the hardcore scene through really from discovering that band for the love of. Who had it? Yeah, we played. We played in uh, one of those dudes' basements. You know. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and probably probably John Stanley. Um, yeah, it was John. Yeah, yeah. 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 Um, strength six nine one. That was his band before that, right? That was yeah. a previous kind of more yeah. melodic hardcore type band. Yeah. And you know, they were the first band we heard like that. But then we heard Overcast, and we're like, oh, the well <laughs> runs deep. There's yeah. you know that that evil just. Just that evil sound of what was going on, you know, that evil kind of metalcore sound that was that was going on. And I remember just hearing that, and I'm like, oh my god, this is the sickest shit. <laughs> this is some evilness is occurring. Yeah, and, yeah, and, and actually, like even now, I was listening to oh, it. Oh, and- hold on, good night, baby. Good night. Um, I'm not saying good night. Okay. Uh, this is my little my little one, Arabella. Hey. Say hi to Doc. You're on a podcast. <laughs> You're on a podcast. Can I get a kiss, buddy? Mm-hmm. All, right. All right. Sleep good, buddy. Uh, did um, Judah have his fun? Yeah. Yes. Okay. Sorry about that. Yes. Little lady's going to bed. It's all good. We're spicing yeah. it up. 
Yeah, exactly. Um, but I remember listening to it, and then the picture. This is back when you didn't really know what bands looked like, unless yeah, they, unless, especially in that scene, you know. Yeah, and so, but a, but a lot of bands almost would like play off of that, so they would have uh, purposefully uh, kind of shrouded. Uh, imagery i think on that there was just a like blurry kind of uh but like artistically blurry not like it's just a bad picture of you playing yeah. live yeah yep yeah, yeah. but, but you like could see magic. you but you couldn't really totally see you and i'm just like and you would just I think you, my eyes were like crossed and shit in that something like too, that I think, you know? <laughs> just like veins popping out <laughs> i know but no but you would like but it had that mystery and you're like oh they're from far away and you just hope they would play a show around here sometime and and around our scene overcast was legendary you know that it was like oh you like this man but yo that's they're on another level there they're those guys you know well i i always love hearing about like some of the overcast stuff where people like romanticize like the shows in a way where i'm like yo there was 30 people at that show you know or something <laughs> like where they'll see a lineup like whoa you guys at the gates napalm death in connecticut i'm like yeah there's a 95 people there like you know <laughs> well, and uh but it, it was it was such like you said it was different where you were hoping you'd see a band there wasn't a touring circuit you know for those type of bands back then uh you didn't know when you'd get to see them or if you would a lot of shit was happening through like you know friends playing stuff for you because that shit wasn't even available there'd be like a you know, thousand copies made of those cds and shit mm -hmm. so it was just different the accessibility made stuff so much more mysterious and and like i don't know it that it, you had to try a lot harder to, to find out about bands that weren't on on the you know the mainstream kind of radar so it just made a different vibe back then yeah it's interesting that when i think about it now that there was almost you know how you think about the blues it was like the chitlin circuit yeah for yeah. us it seemed like you had the basically the entire northeast right basically from like buffalo and syracuse and that whole scene to new england to basically down to like dc and then obviously mm -hmm. there's a little stuff in Virginia, but then you had all like the bands in Florida, like Poison the Well and Shy Halud, Shy Halud, right? Yeah, yeah. And yeah. then there was like the Orange County scene. Yeah, you know, no, so it was it was definitely segregated like that, and that's why touring was so hard because if you once you either went down to like DC, you had to go all the way to Florida next, you know, and if you want, <laughs> and if you that. went past Pennsylvania, you had to go right to like you know California, you know. Like, obviously, there's stuff along the way, but not like big scenes. So I remember those first, what we thought were tours were just long weekends, you know, but luckily in the East Coast, you could hit, you know, Boston, New York, and Philly all in a long weekend and actually play shows, you know? So, so I think coming up on that and like in the East Coast helped that way because of that, you could actually play out of state, you know, more often. So. so when you guys were, so when did exactly did Overcast start? Overcast started in 1990 uh, when I was... I was probably 14 or 15. I'm, it's so weird. It all goes back to skateboarding. Skateboarding is the key to my entire musical existence. Like, I'd been playing bass in, like, a, a band that sounded like Skid Row meets, like, the Sex Pistols before that called Frenzy. And uh, I was skating with a dude I know, you know, from high school, and his cousin brought Mike D to skate the ramp. And Mike D started talking to me, and I was listening to, like, you know, early crossover thrash, like DRI and stuff like that. But all, again, through skateboarding, you know, found out about those bands through Thrasher Magazine and all that stuff. But also listening to like, you know, Zeppelin and just Guns N' Roses and like normal shit of the Is day. Is this Western Mass? No, no. I, I 
I grew up probably like a half hour outside of Boston. Same with Mike. He lived okay. about 10 minutes away from me. So like it was this weird suburban area. That's what's weird about the Boston scene in the early 90s. There was Boston city bands, and they were like more on that slap shot post vein, you know, like the post really angry kind of like tough guy hardcore. Then there was this whole scene around these suburbs, like where I lived. A lot of it was called the H2 crew, Holliston and Hopedale were these two tiny towns. And you had all these bands that were doing weirder, more melodic, more like musicianship kind of shit, mm-hmm. but like in the hardcore scene. And it, I, and these kids, shit was, we were young, you know, we were 15. Mike was the only one with a license. And we skated that day and he's like, yo, you want to go see this band Leeway on the weekend? And I'd never been to a real hardcore show. I'd been to like local punk shows. And he took me to the channel to see Leeway with Breakdown from New York and Only a Witness when they were still a thrash metal band. Yeah. And I wasn't ready for that shit. It was, you know, like <laughs> violent as fuck. Like people were, bodies were flying everywhere. The channel had this thing above the stage where you could like swing on it like Tarzan and launch into the crowd. So at first I'm like on the sidelines, like the craziest shit I'd seen was like Jane's Addiction at Lollapalooza at this point, you know? So I'm like, what's going on? And and it was so much fun. Like, you know, I ended up getting on stage and singing with Eddie Leeway and, you know, going crazy and just, that day we decided like let's start a band and i played bass and he played bass so he's like well you gotta sing because i got riffs <laughs> you know and we, we can't have two bass players and that's really where it started we we our first practice was mike on bass a, our drummer jason who was in my other band at the time and me and that's it no guitar and you first guys are all in high school yeah yeah i was probably 14 or 15 probably probably 15 by the time we actually jammed and our drummer was 14. He was a freshman, you know. <laughs> Mike was the older dude at 16 and a half, driving a car. And uh, and yeah, so we we and that early shit sounded like Cro-Mags, like meets like you know fucking just sick of it all type of stuff. And uh, we finally got a guitar player, and our guitar player was this dude Pete, who was like the mulleted dude with the nuclear assault shirt, and the only dude in our school who was that dude, you know. Yeah. So I was, I, I was like, this dude is gonna be perfect. So that brought like a metal edge to us even early on because he didn't know anything about hardcore punk. Like he just knew it, like thrash metal, you know. What about Scott? Scott came in later. Our first, uh, we, we first we were a four piece for a little while, and we recorded this awful four track demo called "Feel the Pain" that literally even had a song with a reggae break. I mean, we were just like trying to figure some shit out you know like. <laughs> which is cool i like I, I feel like that that's i don't know if do people do that anymore i feel like people come yeah, out I, and they they know they're like we will sound like Meshuggah on day one yeah we that's the thing it was, <laughs> what was what was so weird is at the time like mike d was a total hardcore kid he knew like he was the you know had all the seven inches and been going to shows for a while i was just getting into that but i came out more of a punk rock kind of skate rock type of spot and our drummer didn't know any of this shit. He listened to fucking. He, he probably still only listens to Nothing Shocking by Jane's Addiction. Like he's uh, he's Killswitch's drum tech now, which is funny. But like he's probably still listening to the four same tapes he listened to then. You know. <laughs> so we were like a weird mix. And then Pete was the mullet, you know, kid playing who could play solos. So we didn't know what we wanted to sound like, and uh, it definitely evolved. We brought in this other second guitar player, Sean Rounds, at first. He did like. He did the foreign no actually he didn't do foreign difference he did the expectational dilution full length with us he recorded that um, and he could play leads too so he there's some like really just bad shredding on some of that early shit you so know? that that record uh, which is your first full length right yeah yep is that would you describe that as like when the that that's the, the first time we sounded sound? like overcast okay, that, okay that's the first stuff we sound the, there's an earlier seven inch called bleeding to one. And you can hear a little of it. There's some discordance to it. There's definitely a lot more death metal influence in the guitar playing. Mm-hmm. But I'm still singing in this like 
Hetfield meets New York hardcore like voice. You know, there's no screaming yet, mm-hmm. none of that stuff, and uh, it wasn't as dark. And then when we started, I remember this is where it all changed. Mike D came home with COC blind and was like, <laughs> "Forget everything else we've done. <laughs> this is what we sat. We're gonna sound like now." And Pete brought in Morbid Angel, Blessed to the Sick, and he's like, "Nah, we're gonna sound like that meets this," and that was it. You know, like, and that changed everything really. Wow. And expectational dilution, we started bringing in the Slayer kind of grooves and some of that death metal, like, you know, chromatic, like, dun, 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 you know, riffing, you know? Yeah. And and Jay got a double bass pedal, and that changed that, too. So now we were metal. You know? Yeah, I mean, <laughs> what, one of the things that, that struck me is, A, that the material has aged really well. Like, it doesn't sound some as some artifact of a particular time that that see like it it feels almost progressive even by today's standards yeah it, it's weird i feel that way about a few bands from that era like Starkweather from philly was another band where you hear it now and it still sounds fresh even yeah. though you know it's 20 plus years old and and uh that i think overcast not falling into a single genre of that time because there was a lot of cookie cutter like hardcore and there was a lot of cookie cutter death metal then and you know they were like we just kind of bridged a lot of that stuff just by our own influences and also by just that was our playing style was weird we weren't like super proficient technically but we pushed ourselves to try and be and that's what i thought brought some of that manicness to it you know yeah like, but you like, were you guys were proficient. playing a little bit above the above the rim there you know no but i think you guys were pro- proficient in comparison with the rest of that scene like maybe it wasn't proficient if you were in a more you know, like if you were playing with yeah, if death. we were trying to be suffocation or some shit, yeah. you know, like we couldn't do that stuff. So that's that, this was our version of trying to get as tech as we thought we wanted to. But th- and I think that's where the the discord and darkness came from, because we went that way instead. You know, we were listening to like Neurosis Souls at Zero was another huge one. And it's funny because I, I remember that playing that for you and and uh, and Dallas on like one of those early tours. I don't know if it was Amen or like one of those like one of those weekend with us, you guys, and all at war. And I remember playing that for you guys like then, you know, and be like, you got to hear this shit. You know? Oh, so you were the probably one the, the reason I why I got in that record because that's like yeah, that, yeah. Because I remember you guys hearing that and being like, why, why have we not known that this was fucking <laughs> out there? Well, know? no, Neurosis was another one of those bands that was legendary within our scene, but they didn't mm-hmm. play that often, so they yeah. you know, they just yeah. had that that mysterious vibe to them but so when so if we're we're in new jersey and we have this and this is so after begging for indifference but before fight ambition to kill yeah did like do you know that people in new jersey are like putting you on this pedestal and think you guys like do you have any sense of of the impact you're making uh not at, at first and and what's weird is is we had amazing local shows in like worcester and places like that and it'd be insane and Connecticut was a second home to us in New Haven. So we knew, like, you know, hey, we're starting to play out of town and shows are good. But then we'd, like, branch out a little bit further and you'd be like, oh, okay. Like, the dude who booked this show loves us, but he doesn't have any friends and there's no one in this town who cares about any of this shit, you yeah. know? <laughs> and so you end up playing one of those just, like, classic hardcore shows in some, like, VFW hall to, like, eight people and, like, you know, 30 bands, you know? Um, <laughs> but we started hearing that people were into it, but. Uh, like I don't think it really hit us that it was going to have this sort of impact on like, cause the overall sound of just the new East coast scene started changing in general around that time. And, you know, it, it was cool to be kind of, you know, just seen as part of that transition from just 
traditional hardcore and traditional death metal to like a weird mix because that was also when converge was starting to you know mix things up in crazy mm-hmm. ways and they were, they, that type of music was happening so I, I don't think we really realized until after we broke up because we'd always joke like where the f- people be like oh overcast man that shit was you know legendary we that was my shit and i'm like well, where the fuck were you when we were playing trying to like <laughs> keep it alive yeah i mean <laughs> the thing that's crazy too is i think mike d's address was in one of one of the records oh yeah yep, so yep. me so we sent him the um out of misery demo when it was nice, still like yeah. a demo tape before it actually or maybe we sent him cd i i remember but he yeah he respond. He actually sent us back a handwritten letter, just being like, "How crazy!" That's how that shit was back then, where you'd literally get a seven inch, and there would be an address to contact the band, and it was like the dude's house, you know? Like, like yeah, well, but it was just such so, a big part of it. But know? the fact that people would take their time to actually yep. listen to something, yeah. write you a letter, and he actually clearly saw something in the band. It was like, "Oh, you guys are good," and I can tell we have similar influences, and and that was just. That was so badass, and that's how we we would be. Co- but that's how like the first time I don't even know if I met him then or if I met him uh, when he was with Killswitch. But you already have a rapport because like, hey, I'm that guy that wrote the letter. It's yeah, like, hey, yeah, what's up? You some shit. Yeah, yeah. So you're already kind of buddies almost. Um, but yeah. it, but it was I felt for a band like us, we had to find people like you guys to be like our kindred spirits because we were the kind of redheaded stepchild within the hardcore scene. We Well, but so were we though, even in Boston. That's exactly. what's funny is because we would play a lot of shows where I'd look at the lineup and it'd be two straight edge bands and then like one like beat down kind of band. And we're just like, we're just the weird guys in the middle, you know? <laughs> and, uh, and it's funny because we also started purposely throwing hiccups into mosh parts just to confuse people on the dance floor and like and just totally enjoying that like that was like our thing we're like as soon as you thought you could just swing to a simple chugging thing we'd throw some weird little offbeat thing to it that would, and you'd see kids trying to figure out how to hit people to it you know so did, but uh, shit did get violent back at those shows too which was fun man so. so as far as i'm concerned what you guys were doing was the most kind of concise and forward-looking version of what metalcore, or ever, you know, I'm putting quotes up uh, because it's hard to really pin down exactly what it is to me of what modern metalcore would become. How do you feel well, like Overcast fits in that? Because you mentioned Starkweather, other bands. Yeah, I've I've the, heard people say, well, it was Rorschach, it was Starkweather. Who really do you think well, deserves the credit, or is it spread the credit spread out? It, the the credit definitely spread out. But I, one thing that we did that I think. Uh, was a natural thing for us but became a signature of the genre was just the the melodic kind of singing and thrashy kind of vocals mixed with the screaming which there were bands doing that and one of them was starkweather uh there was a couple metal he sang yeah he's and he sang amazingly like he had a much more like i didn't have a very pro voice at that time like i hear some of the early recordings like and you know just some of those notes i'm like you know like auto-tune would be angry if they you know (laughs) that shit was ran through it whereas he had a more like classical kind of voice mm-hmm. uh so that I, which again they were always considered a metal band that was loved by hardcore kids you know but where i think what made us have more of a hardcore vibe was some of that that i wasn't as like cl- you know like such a classical metal voice you know like on the melodic stuff yeah. but yeah, at but the I, time I, that wasn't happening as much then it really wasn't yeah. like that kind of like good cop bad cop you know vocals you know which now is a complete staple of that genre I think we definitely, you know, had a hand. There was other bands, obviously, doing stuff like that. But uh, I think that was kind of our one of our, the things we added to it. Yeah, to me, the, or as far as I knew, 
the only other bands that did it very distinctly was Vision of Disorder. Oh, and, VOD, yeah, yeah. And Caven. Uh, yeah, where well, it was, and it's funny because Caven, like, man, when they first started, they were super, like, just crazy, almost tech, like, you know, insanity. I remember seeing them when they, and they were young, and we were like, dude, these kids are like the young kids coming for our shit. You know, like, <laughs> like, like they can play, like, damn. And then they blew my mind by putting out one of my favorite rock records, like, you know, years later down the road, like Jupiter and shit, mm-hmm. you know, like, so, uh, it was cool to watch their progression. And, and Converge was another one where he actually did sing in the early days. I, there's this, some of their earlier shit was almost like biohazardish, but then they had this one I have demo. To, you, was, you, have, you have to send me some of that. Dude, I, the, I don't the, believe the song you. Gravel. Song, <laughs> gravel. <laughs> yeah. You know, and then they had this demo that it was just called the Beelzebub demo. And I, it might've had a real name, but my cassette just had Beelzebub written on it. And, uh, they, he would do this crazy haunting singing and then it would build to this, you know, huge epic thing. And it was, it was awesome. And that was super different. Then they, they went more manic like later on, but in those early days he was mixing those vocals up too. So, you know, everyone's kind of part of that whole thing. What's really weird is the, how it came out of a very small area in Massachusetts and like really young dudes who were doing that between, you know, Converge, Cave-In and us, like, and there's this band arrives who gets left off all the time because they never really made it past the high school stage mm-hmm. but they were the biggest influence on all of us they were from they like they had this weird way of mixing like slayer riffs with like cathedral style doom riffs and then a blast beats that like would go off into noise jams like they were way ahead of all of us and they were young as fuck too and it was it was crazy how and they all came out of these three suburban towns it was weird well, I mean, I, I, <laughs> I think a lot of movements tend to be like that. There's just kind of some primordial ooze in one. Yeah, where, totally. Where yeah. It, it, you know, it's just and like it the, shoots out of weird towns like Gothenburg. They're like, ah, here, you shall have melodic metal. You know, like <laughs> it's well, it's I mean, there's you can't discount the culture of whatever's there yeah. that is unique to that area. I think when you look back, especially pre-internet, you were a victim, but also a beneficiary of your locale. You know, you didn't, you could totally, you, you couldn't really find anything else outside and, of and that. The, and there's something to be said for that. Cause you can focus and hone in on certain things, which then once you kind of get your thing, then you can go out in the world and find other like influences. But I think that like having that sort of be almost, you know, insular with that scene, you do kind of figure out where you're at, like what you're, what you're all about. And then you can go and get more like kind of worldly as you know, as time goes on. Mm-hmm. So I think that was a benefit, you know, back then, like as far as, being a little cut off from that stuff, but being surrounded by these incredible bands and musicians. Yeah. Uh, so when, af- how long after Fight Ambition to Kill did you guys break up? Uh, not super long after it came out. Like, honestly, uh, it was weird. I, you know, I was 15 or so, 14 or 15 when we started. And all of a sudden I'm in college and like trying to still play shows as much as possible and have to work and all this shit. And it was, it was kind of a grind cause shows weren't like exactly, you know, always awesome then where you drove like five hours to play to like 75 people, you know? Yeah. So, uh, we did a tour with shy Halud, disembodied and for a little while section eight and also shadows fall was on it yeah. when Phil, when Phil was singing and that tour destroyed all of those bands. Shy Halud <laughs> survived and came out of the, the, the smoke, uh, so did Shadows Fall, but both in completely different ways. Like, you know, they were not the same bands after that. But and because was, this tour was so bad? 
It was, it, uh, you, you know, Matt Pike uh, booked it. Mm-hmm. Not Matt Pike from High on Fire, but, you know, the other Matt, the straight edge Matt Pike. Yeah, he's, and, out, he's out here. I see him all the time. Yeah, yeah. Best dude. And, and saw something in us where he always supported us. But he also must have had just a map and some darts and, like, no real sense of, like, you know, how long drives take. Because it would... It was a breakneck schedule to begin with, with tons of gaps because it's a hardcore show. Like, so things would get canceled as you're driving there, you know, so that shit would happen. But also, you know, the shows were pretty brutal, like as far as Mike D, I think, put a list in the Overcast reissues uh, that came out recently on Bulletooth where it has a list of all the shows. And then if you look in the corner, you can see what we made at each of them. (laughs) And the first few on the East Coast are like 150 bucks, 200 bucks. 175 bucks and then all of a sudden it's like 19 dollars zero 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 Jesus. 28 dollars was it a full zero, u.s you know? tour oh yeah like we made it all the way to california we made it all the way down to florida and it was awesome like it taught me a lot about like who i am and like, what i can survive and shit but uh and made all those shitty early shadows fall tours seem fucking like la la land you know <laughs> but uh and some of the shows were awesome like we played a weird squat in like in dc that was like some rasta house and like shit like that I'll, i wouldn't trade those memories for anything you know and like some little hovel in long beach and shit like that and uh and it was great all the bands were killer too you know disembodied were fucking dropping the super down tune heavy stuff way before anyone shy halud was bringing that weird melodic like discordant chord stuff and just tons of energy chad was still singing for him before yeah newfound glory and which funny he played me a cassette he's like hey this is my band it's gonna make me a million dollars and played me this cassette of newfound glory demos and joking though like jokingly saying that and then like you know that's that probably made him a million dollars or, or so, more probably or more, more. <laughs> you know <laughs> probably more so it was just weird that you know that that many those kind of bands were all together and and shadows fall was on the first part of it and i had known all those dudes even from bands before shadows fall that they were in and that's where some of those seeds were obviously sown you know like with those guys becoming really good friends they had a rougher go of it than us they got strip searched at the canadian border literally like you know butthole open like searched you know like it happened to me i have a story story. and so they rolled in first we all had bullshit paperwork you know classic old canadian like border shows back then and they pulled them all out they'd searched them thinking they had found like a seed of weed was their excuse and all that so they ran them through the ringer we overcast shows up next they give us a little bit of brutality nothing crazy we didn't have to get naked or anything like that and then Shai Halud rolls in third after they'd already been messing with us for hours with a Bible on the, sitting on the dashboard, and they just waved him. <laughs> well, they also didn't have any long-haired dudes in the band, too, so, you know. <laughs> gotta, gotta have that Bible. I didn't know about the, the, the Bible move. That's pretty sweet. Yeah, oh, they were looking clean-cut and, like, you know, just, hello, sir, you know. Like, we're just spreading the good word. By the way, there's, there's <laughs> something. I, I made a note after listening to some of the records. I was like, this was the period in hardcore slash metalcore. It was... Samp- samples samples man from a yeah, movie yeah. or something like yep. on there and it it was badass you know for the love of they were the first band i heard and then i realized it was just a thing that uh, was yeah. that was going on i don't want to i don't want to i don't want to give overcast more credit than we're due but i will say one thing about the samples is we had a song as a whole before it came out on the full length we did a demo version of it that was ended up on this compilation called endless fight records yep. comp we did one of those uh, number one and yeah and uh, we started the song with a sample from Blue Velvet, the don't be a good neighbor to her speech, mm-hmm. you know, uh, while Roy Orbison's playing in the background. And then right as he says, you know, 
I'll send you straight to hell, fucker. The feedback kicks in. Only song on that comp that had a sample. Volume two, which we were also on. Every single band <laughs> had a sample <laughs> on the song somewhere. So we're like, all right, all right, we see how it is. I'm it was like, a cool era, you know? I don't, yeah, I don't know. But it was, Mike D was the master of that. He'd be watching movies late at night and hear one weird line out of it and just stop and like record it on a VCR and then record that on a four track and then put some noise in the background and, you know. It's funny because then I'd find out some of them like there's this one where people always thought like, is that a woman getting assaulted? Blah, blah. We're like, dude, that's from Gremlins when she <laughs> flies out of the roof, you know, like on the on the Stairmaster thing there, you know. So <laughs> it's but, pretty, uh, yeah, it's pretty it, great. it was cool. But it added some darkness to it. And I think Neurosis had an influence on us with that because they always they didn't necessarily use samples. They would record weird stuff like that, like chanting and, and mm-hmm. multi-layered stuff. And I think that was probably where some of that came from. Well, it was it was something that created another dimension and it also opened up it was able to look at the music in a different way and, and almost present like this um flair for kind of the, the dramatic especially yeah, in, yeah, in live yeah. shows just things that we get get people in the mood to destroy the place and and, and get fucking crazy but it was totally I mean, you'd hear that sample and you know you're like oh i know a riff's coming after that exactly <laughs> it, was, it, was, it was the shit so you guys, it seemed like you didn't really were look. You weren't really looking to have Overcast be this job or a career. You or- know, uh, I, me and Mike D would have tried to take it to that level. I think at that time, uh, the rest of the dudes got pretty burnt out. That tour, especially. I was a total dirtbag hippie kid at that point, so I would have lived in a van forever. You know, like I was fine with that. These guys wanted to live like humans. Yeah. You know, <laughs> yeah, you know, self respect. <laughs> yeah, you know, yeah, literally, like not in their own filth. And like, you know, they wanted to probably have a shower every now and then. I was I was kind of over that whole thing, so I was fine with it. But also financially, it was tough. I came home from that tour, that last overcast tour, and I worked two jobs immediately mm-hmm. uh, to try and just cover rent and get back on my feet and all that. And what's just funny, because I got a job scooping ice cream and then later making ice cream from Matt Henderson, who was in Madball and, you know, Agnostic Front. I was like, oh, hey, same thing. Yep, yep. You got to you know, make some money on the road. You know, it could be worse um, jobs. And- yeah, oh, it was great. It ended up being a great job. It was it was the punk rock job where we had the drummer for Bane, dude from Madball, dude from Toxic Narcotic. You know, it was hilarious. Oh, the girl from Dresden Dolls worked there. Like, <laughs> it Good was Lord. a pretty crazy place. So how how long after Overcast broke up did you decide or the situate? How did the situation with with uh, that transition yeah, of you getting so the Shadows Fall? We came home from that tour, and a couple of the dudes right away were like, "We're done." You know, like and overcast had a vibe scott was the last dude to join but he'd been there for like you know five years so uh we had we just had a vibe where i was like if we we replace someone it's over you know especially jay our drummer wanted to to leave and jay was such a huge part of why we sounded different than other bands that if he was going to leave we weren't getting another drummer so once he did that you know we kind of knew that was it and honestly at first i didn't think i was going to do anything i was kind of in a weird spot where you know i was only what was that 98 I guess it was when we broke up. So I was only, you know, like had been in that band for eight years, but was only in my mid 20s. So I felt like a third of my life had been in that band already. And I was like, what do I do besides that? Like, I didn't know, you know. So at first, I didn't really plan on doing much. And surprisingly, Matt, at the last second of the last song of our last set in New Haven, Connecticut, walked up and said, hey, man, I got to talk to you. Like, literally, not, well, I hadn't even changed my shirt yet. Did you guys do, like, a last show? 
not it, we didn't know that we were gonna try and do one last one after that but that ended up kind of people started knowing this is this is probably the last overcast show and it was in new haven at the tune-in which was our home away from home like one of the greatest clubs ever and it was it was insane it, it was such a sick show mm-hmm. um we had planned to do a boston one after that and it just never happened so um but matt literally just shamelessly you know like came up after his you know like hey man i, I really gotta talk to you you know blah blah, blah. and so I, apparently, you know, like they had done Somber Eyes with Phil and, and that's a killer record. And but I guess when they were writing new stuff, uh, he wanted to go in surprisingly a more death metal direction at that time. And they wanted to go bring in more melodic elements and go a little more thrash metal. And uh, once they had talked to him and, and it, they knew he was he was leaving or slash getting, you know, asked to leave ish, you know, um, I, I wasn't really sure, you know, I had to think about it and I was listening to the record and I kind of couldn't hear myself singing some of the earlier stuff, uh, as much as, you know, so I was like, ah, I love some of these songs like to ashes, flesh hole, this is all killer, but some of it's, you know, I don't know if it fits my vocal style. And then they gave me a demo that was basically serenity, uh, first noble truth. And I was like, I can get into this shit. I was yeah. like that. I can, this, I can work with, you know, <laughs> I was, like, well, I was like, that sounds like up my alley. So it's we, such a, a difference in vibe you know whereas overcast was very moody very groove oriented very groove exactly yeah Um, we were swinging you know and all of a sudden you know i think even for against of what everybody was doing in that scene shadows fall was doing something completely left field Um, totally you know it obviously had this kind of throwback um traditionalist metal element to it but then but there but to yeah. me in a sense if you didn't end up being the singer of that band they wouldn't have been nearly as cool like in a sense you lent cuz your your style was so di- the way you screamed was very distinct and your singing voice was very distinct and you also brought a certain amount of credibility that i think if you weren't the singer that they wouldn't have gotten the attention Right away, I know for me it was like like my ears perked up. Right, I was like, "Whoa, Shadowfall got Brian Fair." Okay. Yeah. and even I was like, yeah. "Is that even going to work? Is that going to be weird?" Yeah, that's what's funny is that for, that definitely piqued people's interest, but there was a lot of like, "I don't know, man. I don't know." You know, like I really like that Sombrage record, and I really like Fight Ambition, but I don't know if that's going to work. You know, like there was See, definitely. I, didn't, a, I really wasn't go? into. I wasn't into Sombrage. It didn't really do it for me. Um, yeah, and it was really when. <clears throat> Well, for me, I, the big thing about Somber Eyes is the songs were too, too long, yeah. you know, like, and which is what I even remember thinking at the time, listening to the record, like, and we toured with them a bunch, so I knew they were a sick live band, and they had a, that's what I liked about them early on, too, is the energy level on stage was way different than most metal bands, because, mm-hmm. and I always saw them as a metal band, people wanted to try and say this and that, because, you know, Paul had been in Push Button Warfare and Bloodbath and stuff, I'm like, they're not a hardcore band, they're a fucking metal band, you know, but they've jumped around like maniacs and like Hepbrot Energy, so... Mm-hmm. But the song, you know, yeah, some of those songs, I was like, eh, it's cool stuff, but I don't know, we'll see. And then once they, I knew what they wanted to do. John had always wanted the band to sound more like thrash metal than death metal and, and not do these epics anyway. So I was kind of heading that way. Um, but I remember those first, getting those two songs was what sold me. And mm-hmm. we went and jammed and played a show way too quickly, I'll say for, <laughs> for sure. Like where I was definitely not super prepared but it was it was killer like it was austin converge at this place the infinity in springfield which was sick club back in the day and uh 
And then things happen fast. Like I, it, that was what was weird is even Mike D was kind of like, dude, you're already in shadows fall. You know, <laughs> I was like, yeah, it should happen fast, man. You know? <laughs> uh, um, and then from there, like, you know, I, I definitely heard like, all right, you know, we have a chance to maybe get on like a, you know, a metal label and do some shit, but I didn't really see it again as like taking it to some other stratosphere, you know, professional wise but central media came on board pretty quick right after you yeah, joined. yeah well yeah because uh well basically uh andrew sample i think had brought the somber stuff to their attention early on and then what's funny is tom b had already been sniffing around overcast yeah before that uh for people to know tom b was the anr at the time at uh at century media so which I, which honestly, I didn't even know. Like Mike D had talked to him, but I didn't know. I was just probably smoking weed in the van, not paying attention to any of the business shit, you know. Mm-hmm. So, um, and so uh, you know, once I joined, we sent them those demos, and uh, they got real interested. And I think it was the combo of it, you know. They're like, they're like, we can push that. There was, you know, the Overcast members as well as like, this is kind of a new sound for the U.S. You know, like hasn't been a lot of metal happening, but. Uh, and then you know that's that's where that interest started. So, was this? Um, did you sign with the label before? After you guys got with the Rev, the manager? Uh, before. What's weird is uh, we this. There's kind of an unsung. Uh, well, I don't. Most people in the scene would probably want to snuff this dude out. If they saw him, especially like because he ripped off a lot of people. This dude Morgan Walker was where a lot of this shit started. He he was a publisher slash producer slash like all kinds of shit where he recorded some of the early overcast stuff demo wise he helped out hate breed he helped out candiria he helped out dissolve yeah, we, we did a, we did a deal with him too did you but he was also stealing 50 percent of everyone's shit that no one knew about as well so there you know like he signed he had he helped us get stuff we wouldn't have get, got like publishing wise cmj all that stuff we didn't know about any of that stuff but also he knew enough to like have a sign awful contracts because we were teenagers, you know, <laughs> Yeah. like, so I think Killswitch was paying him and Hapri were paying them up to like, you know, four records deep. You know, we luckily shadows fall got out of it a little quicker, but he's the one who actually brokered the century media deal. And at that time, century media had a blanket deal of six records and half your publishing and all this shit. And we were like, nah, like he fought for us to get a three record deal where we retained our publishing well, mostly because he knew he wanted to keep his fifty percent of it, you know. Yeah. <laughs> um, and 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 got a really artist-friendly deal out of Century Media that he worked out. So it's weird because he and you know definitely scammed some people out of some money, but we wouldn't have gotten some of the shit we got if he hadn't been there, knowing how the business worked and all that. So it was yeah. kind of a weird relationship, you know. Well, so I think you guys, in many ways, blaze a certain trail because of what and blood comes out. And it seems to have a pretty immediate impact in that there's something about the record where it's it's not the greatest produced record. Like it almost has this. Uh, it's pretty raw. It's yeah, pretty it's very it's it's very raw. But there's enough songs on there that are like, all right, this is interesting. But you guys had to do that thing even before we did of having to like tour with you know bands like maybe metal bands maybe bands in this scene and that scene where the scene that what it would become a few years later didn't exist yet no it didn't we either we had we toured with the first two full tours for of one blood like we had done a, i remember we did a short run actually i think it was you guys and all out war where we did yeah. that kind of thing out to that like indianapolis our, and that's stuff. our first tour ever 
Yeah, like that, that was like probably the first tour of that cycle. But, you know, that was what, like a couple of weeks or something like that. What was one the week? First, eight days. Yeah, it was one week, eight days. Yeah, you know, so. Uh, and uh, the ne- next tour we did after that was uh, what they the call it? International Extreme. Oh, yeah. It was Dismember, Dis- Dissection, Cataclysm, and Chrissian. Oh, Chris, okay. And dude, we looked like we might as well have been Miley fucking Cyrus, like compared to these bands, like brutal brutality wise yeah like there wasn't a single clean channel being used around anywhere until we got up there you know and uh and, but it was it was awesome but like you said we had to do you know bands that didn't exactly fit stylistically but fit enough that we could get out there and we were the one band on that tour and we had a blast but we were definitely like the, the super dark what, death metal what dudes. was the they name of the, the booking agent that book that i'm thinking. uh uh what the hell was his name uh, something international uh yeah uh but digger 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 international digger. he put digger. us on yeah yeah digger yeah and then the next tour we did was with king diamond because yeah. we you know we could fit in enough on the other side of doing straight traditional metal but which we didn't fit in entirely with as well and that tour was a blast but like and yeah. king diamond that was weird it was the most up and down tour i've ever been on because at that time he was kind of coming back and so, like, some shows would be huge where he'd do full production with a coffin that was on fire and shit. And then other times we'd play, like, the tiniest place to, like, 80 people, you know. So, uh, but that was a blast, man. Uh, so, yeah, we had to, and the, the tour after that, Glassjaw. Yeah, so, like, I saw we that. From, I saw that tour. Yeah, we went from extreme death metal to, like, old school traditional metal to, like, proto post hardcore new metal ish like you know i don't know glass jaw didn't fit anywhere they were just amazing you know yeah but they were but, uh, almost like you guys at the same time where they that's why we toured together we would talk about we're like we don't know who to go with so fuck it we like your record we'll go with you you know yeah <laughs> no that was that was such an in- interesting time but you guys kind of got this you were a year ahead of us basically because of blood came out in 2000 and then determination came out in 2001 and yep. so so through that you're kind of we were still kind of in the shit because we were you know you got you know it's in many ways our our careers have so many parallels but yeah but you guys were it's like we were freshmen while you guys were juniors like that's how it always felt like so we would kind of and you kind of led the way and we're like all right well we'll kind of just follow their well and even more you you were working with the reb so like he would literally learn something and then be able to apply it to you know like a trickle down kind of yeah. thing as well and we're on the same label so we're learning shit with the you know radio and A&R and all that so Exactly and I remember despite doing all that you guys you had, you were selling some records I think you had you went to uh you went to Europe with Kitty right yeah, that was uh, that was right before Art of Balance. I think okay. it might even have been recorded because that was our first tour with Bittner. Yeah. Um, so yeah, the, the of one blood cycle kind of came to an end, and you know, unfortunately, things didn't work out with the knife, who was like literally one of the greatest human beings alive, but couldn't remember our songs you know, <laughs> like, live. Like, it was just this small little issue of you know not knowing how the songs go. As much as but I love the knife. Still- the Bittner yeah. definitely solidified your well, lineup. Uh, exactly, and, and and it was it was definitely like a uh, it, it gave us some ability to do things we might have wanted to do on Of One Blood, but kind of couldn't. Mm-hmm. And uh, but so yeah, I remember we were sitting with Bittner at that bar across from where the old Syndicate office was. And uh, do you remember that spot? There was that sketchy little bar under the bridge there. Like, Is that where they had? I don't know if I went to the bar. Unless yeah, they, did they, 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 they have uh, the parties at the bar? Like the uh, those like big uh, blowouts they would have. Was that at the, yeah, that bar? Yeah, whatever that thing was called. Whatever the syndicate fest was. Yeah, you know, like, yeah, yeah. It was there, and uh, and basically we're like, 
you know, he, he told us like right before we left for that European tour, he's like, I'll do it full time, you know, because he didn't we didn't know if he was joining the band yet. Mm-hmm. So we went and did Europe with Kitty. And that was weird because thank God those girls were as amazing as they were to us. Because when we got there, there was a weird thing with Century Media with us where the U.S. office found us, signed us, and we were one of the first bands that had gone that way. Europe had kind of signed most of the stuff initially. And uh, there was a little division there on what what they thought of us as far as, like, if we were worth anything, you know? Yeah. And, and the U.S., you know, we're starting to do well. You know, Of One Blood sold some records and uh, got a lot of really good radio play thanks to the syndicate and stuff like that. And so we go over to Europe. And uh, they didn't want to pay for any of the tour support or anything like that. But we're like, man, Kitty's like, they had a gold record and they're putting out their new record. And like, we're like, got, these shows are going to be good. They're like, ah, we don't know. And literally every night on that show was sold out. Tour was like sold out. There was a couple thousand people or 1,500 a night. You know, it was, like, it was big. They brought us our CDs. They didn't like the cover art of Of One Blood. So you, you've went through this with mm-hmm. the European office that didn't like Determination, you know? So they put out their own version called Fear Will Drag You Down that basically was Of One Blood with these songs from this Dead World EP that actually Derek Kurzweil recorded drums mm-hmm. on and combined those with new, like, metal-looking artwork. And we're like, all right, cool. We need CDs to sell, so bring us what you got. And they brought us, like, a couple hundred CDs. And we're, we sold them in the first three shows. Between Scotland, <laughs> Ireland, and whatever, and we're like, okay, we need more CDs. They're like, that's what we made, you know, like whatever. We're like, like, come, come on, man. Like, are you kidding me? So they they actually had to get CDs pressed while we're on the road. They put us in some weird RV that broke, like a camper that broke down, like immediately, and didn't want to get us a new van until Robert came and just fucking started yelling at people to get us on the van because we were missing shows. And Kitty paid for our like ferries and like gave us scraps of food and shit. You I know. know? I, I had Mercedes on the show and she told me all about it. Yeah. yeah. Like they literally were saving our lives, you know, <laughs> but the shows were awesome. And we were, we were killing it with these crowds cause they had really young, open-minded crowds and it was awesome. And, uh, but it also let us know where we fell on the pecking order, like in Europe too. We we're like, damn, you know, like they don't, they don't, they don't give a shit. And, uh, and so that was like a little like unnerving. We're like, man, you know, like, because a lot of metal bands, that's where you want to make your second career is in Europe to be able to survive once shit dies in the States, you know? <laughs> yeah, I, I I think in many ways what you guys were doing and then us to a bit of a lesser degree were these um, guinea pigs, right? For yeah. this for this new style. And they didn't – I remember – here's what I heard and, and about the whole – not only the artwork of Determination but also the sound of the band was they felt like we did not fit – into their marketing strategies, which was Central Media was this diverse label, but all their diversity was very specified. So it'd be like, this is yeah. a heart. So it's like Sub Zero is a, a, a goth metal band. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Sentenced is this kind of band, and Nevermore yeah. is this kind of band. And yeah. Um, yeah. And so, so we they didn't feel they could plug us in to their pre existing outlets, and they didn't have the vision at the time to foresee that the scene was going to change. And so they would, the thing with us is they actually started to give us money to do tours, but I don't, you know, outside of that, they didn't do a ton because they, I think in their, like I said, that whole passion side of it, they didn't believe that they're basically reading their market. They're like, ah, our Europeans aren't really going to be into this. That's totally. also how I, how, how, Exactly. And, and that's the thing is, and we'd get over there and tour and we'd do like a great tour, like Children of Bodom and Soil Work, and it would be amazing. And then we'd, you know, the first time I saw them kind of stepping up like 
Well, uh, you know what's weird is the UK office was always way behind us. Whether it was you know Andy or or Sagir or any of those guys, they were all, always way into it, and that's kind of where we hit first, I'd say in general. Mm-hmm. And a lot of it had to do with with those dudes just being passionate about it and giving us you know like the the kind of you know if they couldn't fit it into their thing, they'd shove it into into their into their market, you know like like. And it takes that sometimes. It takes dudes just being like not taking no for an answer. Uh, and I think when we finally did that new wave of American metal tour, the rest of the Century Media Office was like, okay, this shit's happening and we need to accept it. And like, you know. but, but in a sense, though, that was very much kind of the dog um, kind of chasing its own tail because was, they, was, they, essentially, start, yeah. they essentially waited for Killswitch and Kamira to blow the doors off it and, yeah. start, and, be, and then be like, Okay, now we, you know, now we'll be on board, but I feel like you're never going to truly capitalize off something if you're only following Oh, totally. So, so totally. someone else instead of getting ahead of it and I think in a sense that lack of vision on that side um probably hurt, you know, we were the us and you guys were probably the victims of that whereas you know, you fast forward a couple of years and now they're going to sign, you know, this uh, German metalcore band that essentially was doing, from our standpoint, like a bastardized version of what we were doing five yeah. years earlier. But now it's marketable, and now there's a scene, and you're kind of yep. like, you know, we're we're looking at them a little sideways, but it is what it is. What are you gonna do? Exactly. So something happened in a very, from from my perspective, very short amount of time. Where I remember we did this tour. Where God forbid was headlining with Avenged, what well, bleeding through an Avenged Sevenfold, and then you guys came on to headline. I think four of those shows. Do you remember yeah, that? Is this, like this was in, mm-hmm. I believe it was early two thousand two, uh, maybe like yep. sp- springtime. And even with you guys, the maybe the biggest show was like a hundred people. Yeah, I remember we played that place in Detroit where didn't Matt from Avenged Sevenfold like split his head open, was bleeding everywhere. It was the I Rock in Detroit. Oh, the I Rock, Jesus! Yeah, I don't, yeah, I don't. I don't remember him like, messing his head up. No, but. no, and I'm like, this is where, like, yeah, you're like, if people would, that's what I mean about some of the shows being romanticized. You see that lineup, you're like, that must have been this blockbuster. You're like, shot. No one, shot. yeah, no, no, nobody cared. Because <laughs> I thought, even on our own, because this, we had done a lot of touring, but like, man, we're, this, we're going to do some headlining. And it was shot. And then even with you guys, I'm like, damn, we're, 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 we're grinding this and it's still not yeah. working. But then <laughs> Art of Balance comes out, which is, by the way, is my favorite Shadows Wall album. Um, and you guys do Ozfest, and then the next time we tour together is the the uh, Headbangers Ball tour, Kill Switch, Lamb of God, yep. Shadows Fall. We uh, Unearthed did the first half of the tour yeah, opening. Yeah, up. We you did guys this, came on. and then you guys were all rotating, and you guys held it down. Like all, like there was. All of a sudden, there were all these fans, and I'm like, "Where? Yeah. What the fuck? Where did these motherfuckers?" And also, yeah. the same thing. Not only the tour, but the Headbangers Ball show had recently been revived, and that provided a new. That, that was such a huge lift. Like the 2003 Ozfest was the first springboard. It getting not losing momentum was Headbangers Ball picking up all those videos. You know that because like the 2003 Ozfest was that change in the guard between like major label new metal like baby bands on the second stage to like us chimera kill switch you know all that stuff and i don't know if that momentum would have carried because you know how out of sight out of mind shit happens where people might have forgot but those videos were everywhere on headbangers ball where they were like 
I think that Thoughts Without Words video was played almost every, you know, <laughs> every every weekend on that. And uh, that definitely kept that, that – I think it just reached so many more people. Yeah. So, and that should happen fast. So, but you're seeing some kind of this, like, change of, changing of the guard happening in, in real time. Like, what were you feeling? We literally saw it happen where on that OzFest 2003, what people don't realize is – I forget how many bands started on the second stage. But most of them that weren't from kind of our scene, you know, like broke up and didn't finish that tour or got their tour support cut and went home. Yeah. Literally didn't like you would watching it happen where like these bands are literally dying off like in front of us. Yeah. You know? And and you could see just the crowd reactions like and some of these dudes and some of these bands, I think it was like that band Grade 8 are like, yeah, man, our record was supposed to drop yesterday. It's not in any stores. We can't get A&R on the phone. I'm like, uh, yeah, you're what they call a tax write-off. You know, like, <laughs> <laughs> you know? And like you could see it just happen. And, and meanwhile, we're like, what's tour support? Like, that sounds cool. Like, you, know, like, <laughs> you got Sworn Enemy in a van for the first two weeks that said tour bus on the bumper. Like, you know, like we knew how to do shit just so ghetto that like those dudes and all those other bands weren't prepared, you know? Yeah. So we were watching that happen and seeing the crowds, you know, like just really we always thought in our heads, get us on Ozfest, we'll crush those crowds, it'll be awesome, we'll change shit. But we didn't know. You know, like that was like, you know, wishful thinking and ego shit, but uh it actually happens. So we're like seeing this happen and then one we knew it was kind of validated was that Headbangers Ball tour is like, okay, now we can do this on our own. Because, like, obviously, there's going to be 10,000 people to see corn disturbed in Marilyn Manson at Ozfest, no matter what. But we didn't know if people were going to come out on their own. And then that tour was kind of that validating, like, yeah, we can we can carry this. You well, know? I, I just think about it from your perspective as someone who's coming from about as humble a background as you can, who you've been grinding for years, right? At well, that point, thing. at that point, like over uh, Shadows Fall was a new band, but I'd already been, you know, touring for almost a decade. You know, <laughs> yeah, but you were a new band, but you had already, you guys had been touring for four years and put out. Yeah, and that's what I mean. Records. Before that was six years with Overcast. You yeah, know, so you know? <laughs> but, but now all the the hard work is starting to pay off, and you see, oh, this is this might actually be a real thing. Like, what? How did you feel about that? Did it was it vindicating? What? Yeah, it definitely was because, you know, like we felt like we had kind of worked for and, you know, clawed for every little bit we got. There wasn't like that, you know, overnight, you know, success where like, um, you know, some label threw a million dollars into you and you get huge off of a single. It had been a slow burn. And I think because of coming out of that, like, as you know, it, it makes you not only prepared to handle the when things go wrong, you also appreciate everything that goes right so much more than mm -hmm. as if you had just you know, you're on your second tour and you're already in a bus or like you're getting tour support right out of the gates. Like some of those bands that we were doing that Ozfest with, that was kind of where they were at. They were all on majors and they had just been handed this money and like, you know, we're on a bus. And as soon as they had to go do some off day shows, they were like, whoa, wait a minute, you know, where's catering? What's this? We're like, you guys are just, you ain't going to make it, man. Um, and it did, it definitely validated it. It, uh, and but seeing the the actual numbers, you know, where you're like, wow, we just sold a hundred thousand records, or like, wow, we just drew over a thousand people of our, at a headlining show. That it was like that shit was unfathomable just two <laughs> years before, you yeah. know, like two, not like ten years before, two years, you know. I know, I so, was there, man. I was, yeah, I was, yeah, that's, that's what I'm saying. So it, it, you know, so all you and and what happened out of that, you know, I think more or less anyone who's listening to this show knows is. You guys broke out. Lamb of God broke out with 
uh, as the palace is burned. Kill switch really blew the doors open with Alive or Just Breathing. And now all we we all the kind of the the high tide raised all the ships you know hatebreed always mentioned them that to me none yep. of this without hatebreed no, no, well no, most of these of bands happens. wouldn't have even done anything on the east coast without jamie like jamie was booking shows putting out a zine putting out records when he was like 14 yeah. you know <laughs> hatebreed yeah. helped everybody yeah and and that was very you know and and so we see this whole thing so now all of a sudden we go from you know, being this kind of island without attaching anything, all of a sudden now we have our thing. And um, War Within comes out, and that record goes twice as big as the previous record. You guys are doing, you're like, you know, co-headlining with Damage Plan. You're, um, you know, you're doing even bigger headline tours. You guys do main main stage OzFest. Um, what do you think? Why do you think that particular record are, are things really, you know, which... Obviously, at, at the time, you don't know it, but it was probably the peak of the band. Yeah, you know, uh, I think a lot of it was th- the label had numbers to stand on to get certain things done with having gone over 100,000 with Art of Balance, which I think it was either us or Lacuna Coil were the first band to hit that mark for them. So they had a little more ammunition before when Century Media would knock on someone's door to try and get us into like some sort of you know commercial radio or whatever as hard as they work they just didn't have that leverage you know so Mm -hmm. once they had that i think that helped where war within was anticipated you know like people were like waiting for it as opposed to like the art of balance kind of came out where like just snuck up behind people and just choked them out you know like (laughs) this shit there was a little bit of build-up and uh but at the time we're writing these songs and I'm feeling them, you know, like, I, but you don't know how that shit's gonna, gonna hit. And, uh, and also we felt like we took some chances where we're like a song, like what drives the week or inspiration demand was definitely more, you know, rock and roll and, and toned down than anything we'd done. Like we always had those elements, you know, even back to the somber eyes days, there was, you know, a lot of acoustic moments and melodic singing, but nothing where it was like intro, verse bridge chorus type of songwriting you know yeah. with a couple which which is funny for us because i listen to that now thinking like that was a radio song and i'm like it's still like all over the place you know <laughs> <laughs> like there's double bass and shredding you well know, like, i never but, like but the stuff on that yeah stuff on no. that record i never viewed as being some wild um stretch for the band no it, 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 it wasn't a natural. huge one you know it wasn't because even like the song art of balance had those elements but you know but it was definitely like yeah you know we're gonna and Anyone who knows us knew that was more in our headspace musically, especially like, you know, someone like John grew up more in 80s metal and shit like that anyway. So we weren't I think there was a confidence in that record where we weren't afraid to be exactly who we were, you know, like Art of Balance. We were like finding our signature sound, I think, you know, like like this is who what what the where Shadows Falls at. And I think War Within was us being like, now we're going to like let's like just not pull back anything and like kind of like comfortable in your own skin type of thing you know like i think and i think it came through you know where it was like there's a confidence to it you know and i also i would say at the time it was the best sounding record you guys had made definitely definitely production was huge step up Uh, zeus had had really grown as not only a producer but the, the the physical studio had improved a ton we knew a lot more about how to use the studio as well like you know that there was a lot of that we were also really prepared, which I don't know how, because we were like touring like crazy, partying even stupider, <laughs> and and somehow wrote that record and went in the studio super well rehearsed. So I, I don't know. 
I don't know how we did it. We probably just didn't sleep probably. So, but, uh, what was weird about that was also was just, you know, uh, we thought we had something, but you don't know, you know, like until it comes out. So there's that nervous tension, you know, of like, man, if, if this don't do it, like, we ain't doing it, you know. Yeah. <laughs> like, so you're a little nervous going uh, when it comes out too. So that and record, when we got our first work week week numbers, we weren't nervous anymore. We're like, yeah. Oh, shit. Like, <laughs> yeah, because I think on that record, you guys opened for Slipknot as well, right? Yeah, yeah. That was probably like we the tours we did back to back on that shit. Like, dude, we did Ozfest main stage with Sabbath and Maiden. Yeah, like nothing will ever compare to that just knowing that that was like having a dressing room across from like iron maiden you know like, like knowing eddie is in that like road case over there like you know <laughs> like like that shit was just so, watching ozzy do jump rope and catering like you know like shit doesn't get any cooler and then our next tour is an arena run with us lamb of god and slipknot you know we're like but this is as good as it gets you know yeah and that, and that tour so- that tour was eight weeks it was unbelievable but it damn near almost killed everyone <laughs> Like it was so, people were not behaving well. Like it was fucking, it was a mess, but it was a blast. Yeah, and that record ended up selling what three hundred plus thousand records. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it was pretty crazy. So, which for Century Media was just not that was unheard of for them at that time. Which was uh, it it, it was cool because that time the team was still intact at Century Media that we felt like was our team, which mm-hmm. was you know like Sample and you know Steve Joe and and all those dudes. So we felt like, man, we can't, you know, we did this all like kind of collectively. And, uh, and that was that, like, that felt cool. Like we had had a very tight knit group, you know, Zeus produced the records, Zach did the videos, the rev pulled the strings and, you know, Steve Joe did his thing. And Andrew got us on radio stations and it felt like a real collective thing. You know, Mm -hmm. it felt like a team Um, for the last time. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. But so you guys had a situation where, you were trying to, you, I don't know, you can kind of give me the timeline here, but I know you mm-hmm. put out a record kind of to get out of your, to, to fulfill your it, deal. And then you sort of, yeah. What happened was when we did Ozfest 2003, we had to give them an EP and a DVD actually, uh, to get them to put up the 70 K to do Ozfest 2003. Yeah. So that is the first time I think Century Media had bought a band on to a to a tour like that. It was the same thing with us. The next we had to yeah. sign that literally just sign another record. So. Yeah, yeah. We luckily we because we were we were gonna just try and find another way. Like we're like because what what blew our mind were like you you don't understand that if you just put this money into it like it's gonna come back tenfold because man we're gonna go out there and just kill it you know but they they're not you know listening to that shit you know <laughs> so we did that and. uh we wanted to put it out between the Art of Balance and War Within, and they were like, "Nah, we want a full length now. Like, you, you guys got to hit while the iron's hot, and we need a full length." So we're like, "All right." So we went in and did War Within, and then afterwards, did what we called it Fallout from the War because we didn't want people to think it was a new record. Yeah, because it wasn't. It was like three songs that we hadn't finished, like when we were writing uh, the War Within some cover songs and then some live stuff you know and that's what it was so uh and there was good stuff like in effigy is still one of my favorite tunes we wrote you know like that was a killer song um i love the covers we did too because we kind of went to like pull out names that people probably hadn't heard like only of a witness and you know doing uh leeway and and dangerous toys and shit like that like we were having fun with it you know um greetings from evergreen podcasts 
We're rolling out a listener survey, and we want to hear from you. The information in the survey will help us gather statistics and in turn make our shows more appealing to advertisers. I know most people don't like ads, but this is one of the only ways our shows make money and help keep their lights on. We promise it will only take a few minutes, but the impact on our podcasts will be tremendous. As a token of our appreciation, we'll randomly select one lucky participant each month to win an exclusive merchandise package from Evergreen Podcasts. Head to evergreenpodcast.com slash listener survey to help a show and possibly get some free stuff for doing so. We can't thank you enough for the support. Now back to the show. This is Krista Makes, guitarist and vocalist for Less Than Jake and host of Krista Makes a Podcast, a songwriting podcast where every week I'm joined by an amazing guest to break down the writing, recording, and release of one iconic song from their career. In our giant evergreen back catalog of episodes, we've had rock legends such as Dee Snyder and Huey Lewis, punk rock favorites like Mark Hoppus, Fat Mike, and Brett Gurowitz, and up-and-coming artists of today such as Liz Stokes of The Beths and Genesis Owusu. We've had guests from all genres and styles of music, and I guarantee that if you peruse our back catalog, you'll see several episodes that'll make you say, man, I gotta hear that. Whether you're a fan of music or a creator of music yourself, you'll take away a whole new appreciation for the songs you know and love. Chris Makes a Podcast is available for free on all the places you could possibly listen to podcasts, and new episodes come out every Monday. Hello, everybody. I'm Bruce. And I'm Nolan. And this is the Corner of Gray Street Podcast. As longtime Dave Matthews Band fans, we set out to create a podcast to dive deep into the past, present, and future of DMB. Not only do we recap and review shows within an ongoing tour, but we revisit past shows from throughout the band's history, conduct interviews with a wide variety of guests with ties to DMB, and create unique and exclusive content like our Concerts on the Corner series. Whether you're a fan of the band or just a fan of great music, we think you'll find something you'll enjoy. We can't wait to see you on the corner of Gray Street. But what got weird is we had signed our deal with Atlantic kind of right after we knew we had to drop that EP. But Atlantic, we hadn't officially signed, but we knew that's where things were going. Mm -hmm. And they dropped that record like knowing like they held it for a while. Like we wanted them to put it right out and just get it, you know, get it out there. And they didn't. They wanted to like it to be the new Shadows Fall record. So that's kind of where we didn't have a bad like ending with Century Media, but that that was that was definitely like, come on, man, you know, like like let's get this shit out there. You know? Well, I think it's so it it's, stalled putting out Threads of Life for like about a year and a half past where it should have. Really? So yeah, yeah. Well, I so, think um, you know I think that reflects kind of the the motivations and incentives that at a certain point, because we went through a similar thing with the last record we did earth's blood, which was just a normal God forbid record. But because it was the last record, they were only going to invest X amount into, into it. Yeah. And they were going yeah, to maximize exactly. their profits because they were done with the band. And I can't be mad at them. It's like, no, they're looking out for their bottom line. It is what it is. Um, yeah. But I think it is the you music guys, business. You know? Yeah. But I think with you guys, what to me, it's like, Imagine if Pantera puts out uh, Vulgar Display of Power 
And then in between that and Far Beyond Driven, there was some like kind of not really a record, but kind of this thing. And I, and I feel like it hurt your guys' momentum. Oh, it totally did. It totally did. And uh, like I they held it where it almost felt like purposely, you know, like, like, like to do that. And uh, but, you know, what's weird is at that time we knew if we wanted to go for we could have probably stayed at where we were cruising altitude like with century media and they actually offered us a, a decent deal that had just as much money it wasn't a financial thing we just wanted to see what we could do with different res- resources mm-hmm. and uh which and the guy who signed us john rubley at atlantic was just such an awesome dude the president this guy jason flom was incredible they were so into the band so like fans and invested we were like man we're gonna be a major label with such a great support system uh and this is gonna be awesome and before the record came out both of those dudes were gone yeah (laughs) the classic the classic major label story totally and and but here's the thing is that happened to us at century media too when we signed tom left like within a like less than a year same Same with us yeah so we're just like cool so this is happening and which is even funny because then when we did the retribution through Ferret, Carl sold the fucking company before the record came out. We're like, what is going on? Like, why does this happen to us every time? <laughs> so, um, but anyway, going back to like, so we're, we're coming off a pretty fucking high level where we just had a Grammy nomination. We just did arena tours. We're like, man, shit is happening. We actually got money in our pocket. You know, things are good. And the Atlantic deal. We signed one of the most artist-friendly major label deals you'll ever see in your life. Like, and it was right before the bottom fell out on major labels. Mm-hmm. So, like, the advance was—we're not talking like pop star money, like advance, but like for a band like us, big ass advance, crazy recording and video budgets, and marketing money that was just put aside. Like, it, we were like, this is amazing, and even escalator fees, like for the the second record and all this stuff. And uh, so we go out to look at studios because this is the first time we weren't going to work with Zeus because we just kind of wanted to. We felt like we were like, you know, we've been doing the same kind of thing. It's time to break break it up. We kind of always knew we, want, we were going to have him involved in ways, whether it was mixing or different different things. But we just kind of wanted to see what it was like to go to a studio that wasn't at home. Mm-hmm. That's the other thing, you know, where we were just going to go as a band somewhere and immerse ourselves in a record. So we go out to L.A. and we see... Uh, the first studio we go to is Studio 606, and we walk in, and the Foo Fighters are rehearsing for their Foo Stick tour. So, like, there's, you know, Dave Grohl on an acoustic guitar, and, like, it's his studio, and I'm like, I don't care where we go next. We're fucking making a record here, man. Like, you know, like, and he, like, so we're sitting on the couch talking to Nick Raskolinix, like, about making a record, and he just opens the door, pokes his head, he's like, hey, man, I think you should make a metal record here, and just closes it. We're like, yeah, okay, we're, we're, make, we're making a metal record here, you know? <laughs> And uh, and that experience was so amazing. We you know living all together in in those uh, apartments you know out in L.A. having this incredible studio where like literally Kurt Cobain's you know rolling jazz chorus amp that he recorded cleans on Nevermind is in the the back room you know like it's just so killer and uh, and but honestly the making of that record was a weird experience because uh, Nick is an awesome dude great producer. He got the rush gig in the middle of it, and he actually left for a while while we were making the record. Jesus! So it felt very disjointed. Like I, I listen back to it now, and there's like songs that were killer, but like I don't know, man. It, it feels like it wasn't finished, you know. Like and uh, and that's something I'll always look back on. Like man, we could have made a 
sick record if we would have just had a little more focus and a little more I don't know. Like we were definitely like a little bit of a mess, you know, were like you, collectively. Were you caught up in the idea of we're on a major label, so we need to make a major label record? Not necessarily. Like our whole thing was like we wanted to make. We we didn't think we could write the black album. We wanted to just try and write like Injustice for All. You know, <laughs> like, like something might go gold. You know. Yeah. Like, <laughs> well, if it, in in my opinion, especially uh, comparatively to the last two records, and compared to War Thin. Threads of Life just it for me it feels like it lacks teeth. Yeah, no, it did, and and a lot of that came down to I think the guitar tones on it are don't have a bite to them. There's not a crunchiness. We we were we were listening to a lot of like Alice in Chains and and Down and like a lot of rock stuff, and yeah. I think that seeped into us in a way. Whereas on the early stuff, those influences made us like bring some hooks and some melody and some groove to things. This made us take like the tones like away from our sound, you know, yeah. like uh, and, and some of that was producer choices that even at the time were like, oh, I don't know. But, uh, you know, at, we were also we were that's really where our heads are at. But that's what I hear is just there's missing a little bit of 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 aggression to it, mm-hmm. which is funny because a song like Failure of the Devout is probably as like brutal as we've ever gotten. It has like black metal influences. It's got like super thrashy parts. But the guitar tones just more queens of the stone age you know <laughs> you know which doesn't really it doesn't translate so, so yeah, there's a little bit of that like we wanted to make a major label record we wanted to maybe have that hit single like and i the most personal song i've still ever written to this day was another hero lost and you know like uh, that song will always have a crazy spot to me and i didn't know if it would be a hit or not you know but i was like this that's cl- that's the most potential we'd have for something like that but uh it was definitely a personal song so i was just happy to kind of do something like that that i'd never had that much everything for me was always more philosophical lyrically and like more from that point of view spiritual philosophy kind of side of things like even if it was about like current events that was the first time where i went into some shit i was just feeling you know like yeah. the, the it wasn't very uh uh there wasn't a lot of metaphors there wasn't a lot of imagery it was just like some straight up feeling shit so like i'm still proud of that song but i could see people hearing that and being like oh they're trying to trying to write some like when the children cry shit here you know like uh, you think they're a white lion like well you know i think with uh with john and the band and some of your guys you know we've had those debates you know about (laughs) fighting about you you guys like glam metal and i'm like fuck glam metal you're like i'm like new metal you're like fuck new metal (laughs) yeah yeah totally like dude john john wanted to single-handedly destroy any seven string down tune guitar if they could you know like and make everyone learn vito brado riffs you know so uh which he's such the perfect place for him now it's so funny you know (laughs) because he gets to play thrashers but they also have that side to him you know can you answer me this question about john why did he stop doing vocals in shadows fall he, he he just didn't want to. He didn't like screaming, even though he had like that great carcassy Jeff Walker kind of voice. And he had a sick and, fucking like glam oh, voice. And, he 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 wanted to do some of that stuff, you know. Like he didn't. I, we should have used that a little more. We if you listen to like Still I Rise that tune, the high harmony is John just letting it fucking rip, you know. But he wouldn't do awesome. it live though. Oh, he did. He did that tune. He oh, did he that did? one live. Yeah, oh, okay. yeah, yeah. He did that one live. Uh, honestly, a lot of it was for him. He couldn't get some of that like you know like some of the riffing with the vocals like you know it'd be a little tough to hit some of the high notes with confidence where he wasn't gonna crack or something like that so you know but uh yeah you know uh, that that's one that i look back i'm like especially if 
you ever heard the whiskey whore demos that he recorded, like I that did. dude could sing his ass off, man. I know. That's what I'm saying. <laughs> just motherfuckers be good at stuff and just lazy. Like, nah, I'm oh, good. I- Dude, I'm good. you know, that dude is the laziest motherfucker on earth, man. <laughs> like, the only thing he will take the time to do is 100 strokes through his hair yeah. with his brush. That's the only thing he's putting any effort into. He's got a, he does have a beautiful head, <laughs> head, head of hair. So he, uh, he has some Pantene hair, man. So not too long after this, uh, Paul leaves the band, right? Yeah, and you know, it's fun because, like, the Threads of Life had pretty good success number-wise, like we still sold, you know, over a hundred thousand copies, almost two hundred thousand. It might probably, it's probably got to that level. Mm-hmm. But coming from a Indian doing three hundred and coming to a major and doing two, factoring in the fact that that's when shit started happening with like records not selling, you know, mm-hmm. and uh, the whole label went crazy as far as there was like a hundred people working there when we signed. There was like fifteen, you know, <laughs> like like by the time when that record came At out, all of Atlantic. You know, you know, like not like the New York office shrunk yeah. so crazy. It was it was insane to to watch, and uh, so we lost our a and guy, the president of the of the company, who'd been there since he was street teaming for Zeppelin. You know, so like the whole label went through a crazy shift. They were pushing Trick Daddy and like <laughs> not Shadows Fall. You know, like do we walk into the? This is so great. We walk into the Atlantic office in New York, and there's this huge Trick Daddy thing, and then next to it is our cover art, which was this really fucked up, you know, painting that our friend Angry Johnny did of this like root man coming out of the ground and shit. And they said, uh, like, people were afraid, like, to, like, you know, like, like who worked there, like, you know, like, or these and these like. So, but the best there was also a big picture of us and Trick Daddy walked in and saw the dreads and was like, "Yo, man, I want to do a record with that motherfucker." <laughs> and so, so that was when he had just done that. Ozzy tune, you know, the the Crazy Train sample. Oh, yeah, that I don't was know sick. If you remember. Yeah, it was really yeah, cool. You know, so he was like, yeah, man, you know, you know, even the A&R there is like, you know, maybe we'll collab, you know, between you two. And they send us this, this Pro Tools fucking files of his song that's born to be wild, basically. Mm-hmm. And it's, but it's Run 209 or whatever his area code was, you know. Run 209, you know, motherfuckers running wild, something awful. And we're listening to it like, Dude, if we if we want to shoot our career dead immediately, we will track this song with Trick Daddy. You know, <laughs> so we asked, we're like, can we do it like under an assumed name, like Stunt Cock or something, like you know, like so we can still get the money, but like we can't have Shadows Fall's name on this shit, man. Which also, that was the first time I realized you get a a hip hop like pop, you know, like kind of hip hop track. The amount of shit that was in those files, like the bells and whistles, were insane. Yeah. You know, the amount of percussion and loops and say, because we had the whole, you know, we pull up the whole shit at Zeus's. We're just like, oh my God, there's so much going on that sounds like nothing, you know? Well, it's, it's, it's a reflection of anyway, the... random trick daddy story, you know? <laughs> well, for the trick daddy fans out there, I don't know if he's yeah. around. Maybe he'll, maybe he'll, he'll do the X Man. We'll find out about the yeah. trick daddy story. <laughs> uh, so things. For so, the band. Yeah, well, you know, and right out of the gates, things are great. Like, we do the Jaeger tour with Stone Sour. It's fucking amazing. Uh, then we did Sounds of the Underground was, like, a weird spot. Like, where it, that was a great tour. It was Guar, Us, Chimera, Every Time I Die, like, kind of rotating. And so touring was still going good. Like, you know, all, all that was good. When, by the time Retribution, we were doing that, the industry had changed so much. Like that's where all of a sudden it was like, man, you know, the number games is different. You know, like you're yeah. not going to do the numbers you're doing before. Was that's sh- everyone was selling less. 
Everyone saw the last where you're like, you, I'll never forget the first time I realized how bad it was when you chart higher than your last record and sold a third <laughs> of the same, same first week numbers. And you're like, shit's done, you know? So, uh, and we were grinding, man. We'd been on, you know, a decade run of just, you know how we toured. We toured like you guys toured. We yeah. didn't go home. You, you know, put a like, record, uh, you put a record out. You're like next year, year and a half. I'm, yep. I'm be, I'm and that's just, busy. we just, we just went after it. And you know, the partying was getting pretty hot and heavy and uh paul had been partying like hard and we almost had to like have the talk but right before he did paul was like yeah i'm like i'm a man you know i gotta stop and he and he quit everything stopped drinking and got himself in insane shape and anyone who knows you know old school paul was party paul party paul was a party Mm-hmm. Then there was Pilates Paul all of a sudden. Like, you know, like, and dude came in looking like a Navy SEAL, cut his hair off, like was all jacked up. And literally, we could see it happening slowly. After a few tours of hanging with us still as the normal Shadows Fall vibe, sober, not feeling it. Yeah, <laughs> like, and this is, so like, this, this is around when we toured with you guys in, uh, in, in Five Finger, right? Yeah, yeah. So he, you know, and the, dude, that you know, we have two cents on the bus with us, like who are just a rolling party of insanity. We're, you know, John's still Johnny Rock and Roll, like he's still going hard, and Paul's just like trying to sleep and hating all of us. You yeah. Know? Like, like, so and but still, you know, like he had been in a band for so long, he didn't know what else there was. You know, you get to that point where you're like, this is kind of your identity, and he finally knew like. I, I need to find something else. And he decided he didn't quit the band. He just wasn't going to tour, you know, mm-hmm. and we totally got it. You know, it made sense. Uh, but as you know, once a dynamic shifts, nothing's ever the same, you yeah. know, and, uh, and not, and, and Paul is a super underrated bass player as far as he writes just great bass lines for metal. He, he came from that more like, the clash rancid like school of, of bass playing where he wrote like melodic like lines underneath stuff mm-hmm. and when we had uh you know guys filling in like mikey t came and saved us and helped us out a ton but he was a guitar player playing bass so he just played the riffs yeah and like that was noticeable on stage just knowing that someone wasn't there it just makes it weirder you know and then uh things started getting harder to survive you know like some of the bands we were with, like, you know, Killswitch, Lamb of God, they were either still going up or maintaining that level of, like, headlining, like, you know, small theaters to big clubs type of level. And when we would go do headlining shows, we're like, that ain't us, man. We're running that shit. You know, like, like <laughs> we, we ain't, you know, we, we ain't where we were at. And so we could definitely see that happening. And uh, you saw a and, definitive you know, decline. It was, de- and, it, and it was a gradual one, but it was happening. You know, yeah. we were watching it happen. And, uh, and so I, I I was pretty honest with myself about that. Like, you know, I'm willing to grind at a, a certain level and still be in a band because that's what I do. That's what I love to do. I love the road. But I didn't have illusions that, like, things were going to, like, suddenly take a second leap unless we want to wait, like, six years and have that Anthrax bump or that Slayer <laughs> bump, you know, that comes back. The nostalgia, you know, the yeah. nostalgia tour. Yeah, like, if we want to just grind it out, like, for you know another five or six years we can hope that happens you know or something but like that's not a guarantee so it, it start it starts you know you start looking at things in a realistic way man you know where you're like shit you know are we going to be able to survive financially you know as, as a band 
as things kind of head in this direction, especially with the industry where it was, you weren't subsidizing anything with record sales, like where you used to, you know, take time off and still be getting checks, you know? Yeah. So, Did you have any theories as to why you felt like some bands, and especially with you guys, where I, I kind of have this theory where I feel like there's a gap in a marketplace or a certain band. This sometimes works with actors too. You'll see like one actor steal another's actor's career. But like, I feel like if you look at Trivium kind of uprising, which to me, they're a different band, but they kind of represent very similar uh, styles of, of metal. You have one band yeah. kind of rise up and it kind of, they kind of take some of the spotlight and they, you know, that lane. You know, well, and like, also newer kids coming in hear them and don't don't know what the history or where things came from yeah. too, and just hear that as something fresh. You know, yeah. What's even, funny is, it, especially with Trivium, Matt was a big Shadows Fall fan from the early early days, where I remember getting the first Trivium demo from him like years you know before where like he's like oh you guys are you know we're super into like you know gothenburg metal and then like you guys and stuff like that you know so we knew that was an influence on them and they were they once i also saw with those dudes once they went in that kind of metallica route like post oz uh, ozfest 2005 mm-hmm. i was like man these guys are gonna it's either gonna work and they're gonna just you know be a, like a band that's gonna keep rising and it and it definitely did so but yeah that kind of happens where someone fills a void and especially because of that gap between our records that where that extra ep came out and then we waited another year and a half to drop threads of life and then after that when we dropped threads of life century media put out our best of yeah three weeks like di- difference from when when threads dropped so music buyers at stores saw new shadows fall and then a newer one you know and like they weren't that, helping you not at all <laughs> they're so, helping you know, themselves so some, so some of that shit was happening and, and and we knew we lost like we lost a little momentum you know and and that's a hard thing to get back yeah. especially especially things were happening a lot quicker in general where i was seeing genres come and go within like years whereas before you know that shit would at least take like a generational change you know whereas like all of a sudden this would be hot for like a minute you're like Oh, ba- these bands in the UK are mixing breakdowns and like breakbeats, and it's gonna be huge, and it'll be huge for like a year, and then it was gone. You know, you're like, <laughs> yeah, no uh, doubt, no doubt. And then like Crabcore is gonna be hot for like a minute, you know. Like, <laughs> <laughs> oh my god, Crabcore. Yeah, so we we definitely I I I felt it, and like I I didn't, like I said I didn't have delusions about like oh this shit's not happening to us you know like i was like no nah, man I'm, I'm seeing it i'm seeing it in my wallet i'm seeing it in the attendance i'm seeing it in just general like interest so, but we were still having a blast playing and tours were still like good enough and like it's better job than going home you know yeah so but but um so eventually well actually let me ask you this question mm-hmm. is currently is shadows fall on hiatus or shadows fall broken up I, it's semantics at that point. Like we ain't doing nothing. Yeah. You know, like there's no but, plans, but uh, no, there, there, we are all always still in communication. Like all of us still like, and it's usually over something stupid where we all text each other about something dumb, you know, like, and we talk about it. We're like, we, I feel like we'll write music again at some point, even if it's a couple tunes mm-hmm. and, uh, they'll, they'll be a sh- some shows. Like they'll probably be, a, if new England metal fest is still a thing, I could see us doing that one time. We've had a few offers that were really awesome, but the problem is right now we have to balance it between Anthrax's schedule, now Overkill's schedule, 
which before was Flotsam's schedule, but now Jason's in overkill. Act of Defiance. Uh, Act of Defiance, you know, and then me and Paul both have kids. Yeah. And what really changed for me, like touring wise, was that that was a big part of it. And Paul, like, he knew he was done, done when once he had a kid, you know, like he was done, done. Yeah. Um, He came out and did our last European tour that we did. He came out and did it when we went out to Europe with Unearthed and Acacia Strain. Uh, Paul came out and did it, and he had a blast. But it was kind of like, you know, he, he he just knew, uh, like, you know, hey, I want to go out and just, I still love playing these songs, still love playing shows, but, you know, home life is more important right now. So. Yeah, it's uh, that that transition. So did it, was it uh, John going to Anthrax that was kind of the last straw for everything? Yeah, you know, when we knew that, like, when he first got, it's funny, I'll never forget, Caggiano announces that he's leaving, and Bittner just texts me, he's like, John's going to join the Thrax, you know? <laughs> <laughs> and Bittner, like, he had filled in for Charlie, so I'm like, are we, like, just their minor league system? Like, what's happening here? You know? <laughs> it happens like so, that sometimes. Yeah, yeah, totally. So I and And when John first brought up, we're like, that's an opportunity you don't say no to. And at first it was more of a fill in basis, but we, you know, we could see what was going to kind of happen. So John balanced it for like about a year and a half trying to fit in, you know, touring with both. We even did, he did a double down where we toured with anthrax on, uh, was a metal allegiance there or whatever tour, you know, like, um, and, uh, but that, that shit's, it was getting hard. So we had, you know, our friend Felipe filled in from the band of Caro and he's an incredible guitar player. And he learned that shit spot on. But I'd been looking over to my left and seeing John for like 15 years, man. That shit's weird, you know? Like, And he was a lefty guitar player, so that made it even weirder. <laughs> you know, like, <laughs> um, but, that, you know, so those last few tours, it started to feel like, are we going to become like a third of who we are and just like something new? Like, I couldn't picture writing music with Felipe. Uh, not Well, as Shadows Fall. Like, I could actually see doing something with him like in a project. But John wrote... 80% of fire from the sky, 70% of, of retribution, you know, uh, like, so that it just, I, I wasn't going to go down that road, you know, like I, that's, I, I think I was the first one to finally say like, this is my last tour. Like, yeah. uh, right before we had done, uh, be- it was before the European tour, but I think even before that, I, I, I had done metal all stars. It was a fucking really weird tour where it was like, <laughs> Zach Wilde, Max Cavalera, Joey Belladonna. Was that the one like me. South America or something? No, we did we did Europe. It was the first one of them where this guy this guy was actually in jail now for fraud. The promoter, this dude, oh. <laughs> such a scumbag. Sounds like a solid character. Yeah, like put together this thing, and I see the numbers. I'm like, you're gonna pay me how much for each show? Like, fuck yeah, man. And we'd heard some sketchy stuff, but like, dude, I got paid in full before I got on a plane. I was like, I don't care if shows get canceled. Yeah, like, I got my money, <laughs> you know, like, and a few people didn't and still got on that plane. And I'm like, well, it's your ass, you know. And the shows are actually awesome, man. We had a blast. But I will never forget, I was in Bulgaria in a dressing room and I watched my daughter crawl on Skype for the first time. And I, that, it was too much. Like, I was like, I'm going to miss so much uh for something that if it was put giving us the best lifestyle we could have i would have continued to do it because you know the family if they're if i'm able to support them in a way that like is their best opportunity and i can't be around as much that would i could justify it Mm -hmm. scraping by and not being around just and missing those type of things those life moments i it, it didn't it 
I, I felt like that would be some selfish shit, you know, just cause I want to play rockstar, not be one, you know, like, <laughs> yeah. like it didn't, didn't seem right. And, uh, that was a changing point for me. So right after that, I kind of told those guys like, this, these are gonna be my last tours. Like I'll still like, let's at least, you know, if some things come up down the road, we'll talk about it. But like, I'm, I'm pretty much done. John was full time anthrax at that point, And Jason was on the same page. Like, yeah, like we don't want to be part of who we were and just bringing in different guys and filling guys and all that. And, and it just made sense. Matt might've dragged the horse like for a, a little bit longer. Like, you know, like, cause he just didn't want to go home. Like yeah. Matt w- would tour forever. If there's free beer and water, he's fucking fine. Like you know, eh, he doesn't need the water. Hey man, that's what so. they, that's what we call the lifers. It's yep, it's yep. interesting, which that is he, why he's back doing it right away. He was willing to start. I, that was the other thing. I, I actually had a few offers to start fresh mm-hmm. with new bands, and I was like, I I can't put the energy into breaking a band like right now. Like no way. I didn't have that in me. I'd done that twice, man. I'd been <laughs> on the road for almost twenty years. You well, know how how do you now? Uh, forty two. Where's yours? Right? So you're like you got a few years on, few years on me. You're like that, yep. the next, then that next level. Yeah, because um, think about it. Overcast started when I was, you know, 15. We didn't start touring until I was probably like 19. But like whatever, like you know, like, yeah. and uh, it was a long run, man. You know. So how are you overall in you know the 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 lifestyle difference between being more domesticated and being on the road couldn't be more different. I mean, was it a tough transition or is it easy because you have your family? You know, it was easy at first because I had a buffer zone where, like, I was smart. When we got our major label money, I put all that shit away. And that yeah. shit was making money while I wasn't doing anything. <laughs> like, <Yeah>. so, <laughs> uh, uh, but once I kind of, you know, like, so, but it was definitely, a, it was it was a pretty big adjustment as far as there's just that that thing that you feel separates you when you're like, I'm in a band, you know, like, like you're, it's different. It's yeah. like, it's you like a, all don't know. Man. It's like you a superpower. Yeah, like it is, you know, and like, and I love the road. I did. I, I definitely love the road. But honestly, those last few tours, that was starting to get to me. The just the my physically, my body was not happy about shit. Like, I I feel like I probably have some form of CTE from headbanging and shit. Like, my neck literally tries to leave my body all the time because it hates me from like just windmilling this stupid hair for like yeah, forever the, the hair doesn't help you you're you're carrying no not at all like and, and three it's heads. still there i don't even know why why is it still there but it's still there i don't know how to cut it like it's been my last haircut was 1993 jesus that was my last haircut man so anyway so i was physically burnt i was emotionally burnt i, I was missing john like you know like the, like it was weird you know paul wasn't there john wasn't there it was, it was getting weird so that wasn't hard to walk away from in that way. Mm-hmm. What was hard was was knowing like that wasn't like you weren't that thing, you know, you weren't in, in a band, you know, it was weird. So yeah. But aren't you always you're like the Mr. you're like the side project king. <laughs> like you're always like Death Ray Vision. <laughs> well, I'll always like, be making music. Like yeah. that's the thing, it was like, you know, I'll always be making music. Even when I was in Shadows Fall, I would still do occasional overcast shows. I started doing Death Ray Vision with Mike D. But besides that, when I got home, I went right to a practice space and recorded solo shit that no one's ever heard. I probably have 200 songs that no one's ever heard. I would play with Transient, which was this kind of space rock, sort of like spiritualized type of band. And we wrote probably 50 songs. We'd play occasional shows. You played a different so – you, play, you played drums or something, right? Or I played what? drums at first and I switched to guitar and and because they would still play as a three-piece when I was on tour. So they brought in uh, – ke- this dude, Kevin Rowe, who's an incredible musician, he's a uh, – uh, guitar tech for the Dropkick Murphys. Uh, he was he came in and played drums while I was on the road. But so I started playing more guitar and writing music. 
So when I first got out of Shadows Fall, like when I knew I wasn't going to be touring, I was on the most creative kick I've been on forever, though. I started writing the downpour stuff with Derek, which hopefully one day we'll get that record out. We recorded it like three years ago or something like that. We're slowly just dropping songs online now because we're like, ah, what we just you, got so. What are you going to do? We, is, we it, just, is it self-released or? We don't know what we're going to do with it. Like, that's the problem is we all were in a point where like we wanted to make it a studio-ish project. We may play a show here or there. And but no one wanted to do anything on the business side to follow through with like, how do we crowdfund? How yeah. do we, you know, like, it's a lot like, of what work. do we do? Yeah. So we just have been sitting there like waiting for someone to either like just be like, we'll just put it out, you fucking idiots, you know, like and just do it for us. Or one day we'll just put it out. Like it didn't cost us a ton to record. We're still slowly paying it back. But that shit, some of that, that's the best singing I've ever done in my life is on some of that downpour stuff. Uh, it was some of the easiest stuff I've ever written. Like I, I, I wish I would have been able to do that at a different time in my life, honestly, because it's, it's incredible material. Uh, I'm also playing in a band called hell night right now with some dudes from, from St. Louis where I'm living now. Uh, and that's way more raw, like sludgy punkish hardcore. Uh, and that's shit. Like I'm having a blast because like, it's all balls out. Like even lyrically, I don't have to fit into any sort of like shadows fall had a vibe. This, I can just like say whatever the fuck's on my mind. Like that's been a, a blast. And, uh, and then I'm always just recording other shit. So I'm always doing something, but it's never going to be like a full-time thing. You know, yeah. I'm, I'm just dad now, man. I got two kids. I got an amazing wife who would let me, you know, run around as long as she could until like I had to come home and take care of business and who supports all the other side project type stuff. Uh, but man, I can't imagine like not being around with the, with the with the little dudes and and my little lady. I, I I can't imagine not like being on the road these days. How how has been the transition leaving Massachusetts and being in St. Louis? That was harder than leaving the road at yeah. first. <laughs> That's a big being, shift. Being landlocked was weirder than I thought it would be. Like I would always be able to go to the beach, man, the ocean. Like you know, like my dad's always at a place down, or, or my grandparents are at a place down Cape Cod. You know, I'd always be at the ocean. Uh, vibe wise, it's very different. Uh, I mean, you're literally but, in the middle of the country, literally. Just yeah, literally, 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 right in the middle. Um, and it was weird at first, you know, I didn't know anybody either, too, besides my wife. Uh, but it, there was a lot of logistic reasons where it made more sense. Uh, I was, and, and at first, I was still touring. So for her to move to the East Coast, where it was not only more expensive, where she had no connections and she had just started a business and all this other stuff, to uproot her would have been uh, just not made any sense and been, and been unfair. So uh, it was easier for me at first as I was still traveling. I could just fly to Massachusetts or whatever. But I do think writing uh, Fire from the Sky uh, was a little weird because I'd either fly in for like to write for a little while or we do a lot of like uh, demo trading, you know. So that was that, that changed that, too, uh, which didn't seem like it'd be that big of a deal of time. But it is weird. It's something about not being in the same proximity as your band. Like, you know, you, you know, people who've gone through that shit before it, it, it can make I, a difference. I do it now with my band Vegas nerve. It's, it's, yeah. it's everything just takes longer and it's a little more yep. labor and you feel disconnected and you wonder if, if that, you feel disconnected where if they're jamming and you're not part of stuff or something weird, you know, and they sending you stuff. You're like, Oh man, if I would have been there, I could have done, you know? So, but, uh, it, it just, it made more sense to be here and, and, uh, fortunately, like I said, I lucked into a, a good job here where I'm still, you know, working for a guitar company and, and doing things like in the music industry. And which is really funny to be talking to like some guy who owns a music store and then they put two and two together occasionally and be like, wait a minute, <laughs> Ryan Fair, Dreadlocks, Shadows <laughs> Fall, 
<laughs> and the guys who I work with will hear me get like recognized like every now and then on the phone and be recognized. Like, yeah, wow. You know? <laughs> I've heard that, but I'm not, I don't really use it. Yeah, that's yeah. pretty pretty crazy. Right. That shit, well, you know, you're at the grocery store and someone calls you out. You just got recognized. Man. <laughs> well, I well, I'm sure you don't get to blend in as much as some other people. So. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That would always be funny. Is like, you know, you go out and about. I'd be with like Jones from Killswitch, and you'd be like, "Man, I put on a hat and like disappear." He's like, "You can't go anywhere with that shit." You know, like <laughs> for some reason, I get recognized a lot. I don't know. I don't know why. Tall, bald head. You know, people see you coming. I don't know what it is. All right, so yeah. I'm asking you. I'm asking you one one more thing before I'm, I'm going to let you go. And thank you so much for for oh, for dude, doing my this pleasure, man, and taking your time. So we got to do a little Celtics talk. Uh, Hell yeah! So been a weird off season, my friend. Weird. This yeah. has been a this has been epic. You you nabbed two all stars. Yes, indeed. So uh, so what do we? It's, right, it's so, a, so three three things. Three. I asked you. So the Avery Bradley deal. The that's more, a bum out. The more that's the biggest for me is is the is, is a bum out. But I know why they had to do it. You know they weren't gonna be able to resign him for what he's worth. We got but the Gordon a- Avery. Oh man, I love that dude. Yeah. So we got the Gordon Hayward signing, and then we obviously have the huge, massive Kyrie trade. How do you? So let's start with the Kyrie trade. Do you, are you do you like the trade? I I like the trade only for the reason that I think uh, Isaiah's hip is shot, and if it isn't, it will be soon enough. Like you can't. Put, like it's the Iverson thing. You can only put so much miles on a frame like that, and take the hits and and be able to put up those numbers for a, a, a small amount of time. And also watching those Iverson teams, yeah, when he gets the finals once, and like you know, like you can that only you get that lightning in a bottle where he has a season like that every now and then. But man, I love that dude. Like watching him play this season was the most fun thing ever. His run through the playoffs, going through what he did, was amazing. And personally hated Kyrie <laughs> like flat earth motherfucker now like, you love you know, him like, like like and what's weird is I'm a Duke fan so like I but I, I all I remember him from Duke is not playing with a broken ass foot you know so um but as far as a, a talent swap like Kyrie's a superstar if he when he's right you know I, I do think he dominates the ball a little bit so I'll see how that goes but Hayward's a good person to have with that so is Horford they're not dudes who ball, ball dominate and they like to to kind of give off some of that pressure mm-hmm. which horford too much that dude could be dominating motherfuckers and he doesn't that drives yeah. me crazy sometimes he's never been but, a dominant offensive player in my opinion uh, when he would play the celtics in the playoffs he always would he'd fucking go off like out of nowhere what but, he yeah, had 18 I, points <laughs> yeah on. but they but yeah exactly but that's you know but he's i think that that actually works with someone like Kyrie. uh the thing i'm worried about is who's going to defend anybody Besides, either Jalen Brown and Tatum going to step up and start defending some people. Well, I mean, you still have uh, Marcus Smart. Yeah, yeah. And, and I, I've loved Marcus Smart since watching him in Oklahoma State just punch some heckler, like, old dude. Like, <laughs> you know, like that dude's just hard. Yeah, I mean, so but, I, I think you still have some defenders, I think. But there you, is, you, you, but, you essentially took apart the core, the defensive core and the identity. Well, think about that. A team that won the East and went to the Eastern Conference Finals has – like one returning starter, you know, <laughs> they, they flip. I love that because Danny Ainge didn't fall in love with the number one seed and that we did this. He's like, we, he knew they weren't beating Cleveland. He knew they sure as hell weren't beating golden state. Gotta do something. And some coaches want to save their job. And they're like, Oh, well we made it to the second round of the playoffs. Why do we want to blow this shit up next? We're one piece away. It's like, nah, that's <laughs> you mean. Yeah. So at least he had the vision to do something drastic. 
Yeah, I think I just can't believe Cleveland and Boston were able to work out a trade, which has never happened between the two teams that played in the Eastern Conference final the year before. Like, well, yeah, let's just switch franchise players. <laughs> well, I think <laughs> I think it's a reflection of the fact that it clearly showed that Cleveland was is not afraid of Boston. Yeah. Even as constructed, and I think they suspect LeBron's leaving. So, oh, LeBron is definitely leaving. He's so, been looking at, at uh, private schools in L.A., man. He's out. Yeah, and so I think they were – that getting that pick um, was basically like, all right, we need to pl- start planning for the future. And yep. because essentially 20 teams called for Kyrie, they were yeah. getting – they knew what was out there, and they're like, we're, we're going to go – we're going to be bold and ask for the fucking lot. And they got yeah. the lot. You yep. know. They did, they got they got a, a serious haul. The thing is, if Isaiah's hip is totally shot, and they do, I can picture them doing something stupid and trading that pick to help LeBron this year, though, because the, the Cavs. I don't they think just they can't. I don't think they, they would do that. Fuck um, things up. I don't know? think they would do that unless. I hope they. I they shouldn't. If they're a smart franchise, it's the dumbest thing they could do. But well, they've done dumb things in the past. It, de- it depends if you can get you know if, if you can get Anthony Davis for that pick. Well, yeah, that's you do it. yeah. But that's, that's what I'm saying. If, if it's if it's yeah. something where. It's someone who's great but young and odd who has three or four years on a contract. Then yeah, maybe yeah. It's, maybe it's worth it. But I don't think they're going to do that unless either they knew for a fact that LeBron was re-signing, or it yeah. was it was some miracle of a situation where they you could can't, get some. Can't say no. Yeah. Yeah. So but. it'll. We'll see what we'll, we'll we'll see what happens, but that's the I thing think, is it's, they can all do whatever they want, and they're going to run into some buzzsaw that comes out of the West anyway, so it doesn't matter. <laughs> well, they they've given themselves a fighting shot. I I, I think. Yep. In many- I'm just glad they're doing. I, they had to do something, man, because you couldn't keep things the way they were. It wasn't going to last, you know. Like, and now they got younger too. That's the other big thing. Yeah. Is is people don't realize Isaiah's in his 30s, you know? Like, no, he's like not. That, he's 29. He, well, he's going to be 30 by the time he comes back to play this this next season. Yeah, you know. So like that's, and with that type of mileage and just the way he he plays hard, dude. That's one that you know, like that dude plays hard. He takes shots, and you know. That's they got younger, so that, that, there's there is some future there, but we'll see. I it just something about Kyrie, man. Something about Kyrie, just like you just want to slap me, like get your shit together. Did you see his interview on First Take? Yeah, yeah. Just it, some, he's he's playing some uh, mental some, wizardry. Some, I don't know what's going on some there. Passive aggressive weirdness <laughs> is what it is. <laughs> he's a weird guy, but in in a sense, I I figured out with with him is you see some of the things he does, and you're like, it it looks like magic. Like it yeah. doesn't actually make sense. You're like, how was he going up and hitting that it, angle? It, it, he, he, him going to the hoop is crazy sometimes. Yeah. So maybe and, well, and Isaiah had some of that to him too, but it was more a little guy just forcing it in. Kyrie just does shit where you're like, I don't understand how that just happened. Yeah. So, so my theory is this motherfucker is magic. All right. So he's seeing the world differently. He's seeing like fractals and fucking yeah. gargoyles and shit flying around. Things like he, things stop and he sees the three angles yeah. like the, the the no one else sees, you know, and then he lets time release again, you know. The earth is flat for him, you know. It does yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So we got, you know, so we're both looking forward to the uh to the NBA and maybe you know, during the year, maybe I'll bring you in, we'll kind of do a little half season recap, see how you're feeling about everything. Hell yeah. Oh, there's one thing I have to add in because I listened to the Lorenzo podcast the other day mm-hmm. and he told the epic story of the Jason Newstead encounter, which I was 1000% part of. And <laughs> there's two things that he, he left out one of the funniest parts of that entire thing. Jason walks up and says, you know, the whole, you say something to my wife thing. And, and Lorenzo goes, 
I say a lot of things to a lot of broads. That's what I do. What do you want to do? You know? So Jason stops and goes, sorry, sorry. My name's Jason. He goes, motherfucker, I know who you are. I got injustice for all. And like, <laughs> it was the greatest line in the history of metal. Like, it was oh. the greatest thing ever. Oh and the God. second thing about that is his story about Danny Filth. We have all of that on video. Bittner has the video the fight? Of, of Danny Filth walking up. An open hand slapping Lorenzo as hard as he can. And Lorenzo, quote, unquote, I don't know how motherfuckers do shit in British, but in Brooklyn, that'll get you snuffed out. And he just <laughs> chases him and, and picked up a piece of fencing and threw it at him. And it's all on video. It's fucking amazing. So well, anyway. We need to get that on the YouTubes, all right? The world Yeah, to totally, know. totally. Yeah. Well, so, but a, I was listening to that. I was like dying. I'm like, ah, oh, how did you leave out the injustice for all? Line? That was the best thing. Yeah, ever. but you got to remember, it's Lorenzo. He has a million stories. He does. That, yeah, I, I babysat him through that entire 2003 Oswald. I don't know how I got that job. It was because his band wouldn't take care of him, and I didn't want to leave him to you know behind. But uh, man, the shit that went down on that tour is just unfathomable. Everyone survived. <laughs> no one went to prison. Nope, uh, nope. Hopefully, good, ta- yeah. good times were had by all. Ho- hopefully, no one contracted any diseases that there weren't, you know, some remedies for. Uh, <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> oh, oh good times, man. Well, thank you so much for coming on the show. I think people are really gonna enjoy this. And um, yeah, if you Indeed. want, yeah, dude, I love the show, man. It's it's killer, man. I've been checking out all the episodes. Right on. We're gonna try and keep it keep it good, keep cool ass motherfuckers like you because you know there's only. A few of us that have been around this long and been doing it this long, and and I think, you know, people want to hear it directly from the people that experience this, and especially someone like you who has been able to exist in multiple scenes and see the culture shift and, you know, just being being there in Boston in the early 90s and seeing things that, guess what, we don't don't have video footage for a lot of that shit without without your accounts. And people kind of putting it down to say, hey, this was what it was like. Um, you know, this is in many ways, I'm almost, do, you know, I am my own documentarian about these times because I'm fascinated because guess what? I wasn't there for a lot of stuff. Yeah. So I, I well, need- and, and like you said, since there isn't all this footage, that's where like th- things can become, as you said, like, you know, oh, that that legend status of those days because it, it, it does exist in this like almost, you know, unknown realm, whereas now everything's documented you know like like to the point where i wonder if you can have that sort of like mystery and like legend you know anymore you know no we're we we have definitely um ascended in or maybe descended how you look at into the um (laughs) transparent age yep um and that has yeah so uh, kids don't do anything stupid because that shit's on tape now yeah or or it, it becomes a situation like almost like a trumpian thing where once everything is out there you just people have no shame yeah so they don't exactly. care it's like, like yeah you know it, it, i pissed on a cop you know whatever when i was 13 it's cool you know? yeah i'm gonna get a million hits it's gonna be killer exactly yeah. exactly there's uh <laughs> only only you know all press is good press i guess indeed depending how you look at it but all right brother you be good hopefully i'll see it, you soon indeed man you know fuck yeah thanks for having me on brother fuck yeah
So this epic jam is entitled Beautiful Nothing, and that's from Brian's new band, Downpour. And the album, I guess it's still untitled, and the release date has not been announced yet, but apparently sometime fall so soon this album will come out. I hope you guys enjoyed that. I hope you enjoyed the conversation. Some of these recent shows have gotten pretty long. Uh, Let me know if that's annoying to you guys, if you prefer a little shorter, but I feel like some of the stories that some of these guests have are pretty in-depth and they've done a lot and I want to cover all of it. I don't, I'd prefer not to skip, skip over some of these really important things. And me, I'm a nerd too. I like to know about the process of what happened with this area of a band or why their sound changed or what was going on internally. So I try and get into the nitty gritty and, and you can't do that in a, in a really condensed amount of time. So hope you guys are enjoying what's going on here. Uh, recently I sent out a thing on Facebook asking for a bunch of guest suggestions and luckily you guys, you know, I got a lot of great ideas. A lot of it is already people I had on, on my mind, but we also put a couple of people like, all right, I have to, you know, I got to give the people what they want. You know, I can't just talk to, who I want to talk to, you know, I want to talk to those people too, but you know, I gotta, gotta make you guys happy. So yeah, keep giving me suggestions uh, of people you want, you want me to inter- interview and hopefully I can get out there and they'll get on the X-Man. We can tell their story. Right, because motherfuckers, they did some shit, and I'm gonna find out. All right, and I'm like the Geraldo Rivera of podcasting with no mustache. I might get me a mustache, you know, and then, and then get more scoops. I have all the scoops. All right, get some ice cream, motherfuckers. Mamba out. This is the Jabberjaw Podcast Network. Hey, what's up? My name's Lurk, and I'm the host of Lamb Goat's Van Flip Podcast. Every week, I have in-depth conversations with bands from all over the scene, big and small. We also like to keep our finger on the pulse and showcase up-and-coming bands on the show as well. So come check out Lamb Goat's Van Flip Podcast.